Encuentra el bosque más cercano en descubreelbosque.org. El bosque, más cerca de lo que crees. Denver Planning Board reviews and makes recommendations to the mayor and Denver City Council on rezoning requests, district design standards, and other land use rules. This meeting of the Denver Planning Board begins now. Good afternoon. Recording in and progress. Welcome to the October 18th meeting of the Denver Planning Board. We will uh, start with a roll call. Claude? Here. Uh, Jordan? Here. Lady? Here. Angel? Here. Gosha? Here. Mary? Here. Melissa? Here. And I'm Fred Glick, and I'll be uh, presiding today. We do have a quorum and can proceed. At the uh, beginning of every meeting, we provide an opportunity for general public comment. These are comments from the public on something which is not on today's agenda. So if you're here to speak to an item on the agenda, this is not an appropriate time. But if you're here to speak on anything else, please uh, let us know. Anybody in the room can raise their hand. Anybody online can also give us the raise hand. Not seeing anyone coming forward. We will move on to meeting records. We have two meeting records for approval today, and we will start with the records from uh, September 20th. And present at that were, and present today as well, are myself, Mary, Angel, Melissa, Gosha, Claude, and Heidi. Does anybody have any comments or corrections for those minutes? Somebody like to make a motion to approve those. Second. Moved by Gosha, seconded by Angel. 
we'll do a quick roll call. Uh, Mary? Aye. Angel? Aye. Melissa? Aye. Gosha? Aye. Claude? Aye. Heidi? Aye. And I vote aye as well. Those minutes are approved. We also have the minutes from the October 4th meeting. Uh, present on that day and present again today include myself, Mary, Melissa, Gosha, Claude, and Jordan. Does anybody have any questions or corrections about those minutes? If not, I'll enter to the motion. I move to approve the meeting minutes for October 4th, 2023. Thank you, Mary. Do I have a second? A second. Claude, thank you. Uh, we'll go ahead and do a quick roll call. Mary? Aye. Melissa? Aye. Gosha? Aye. Claude? Aye. Jordan? Aye. And I vote aye as well. Those minutes are approved. Thank you very much. Uh, moving on, uh, just want to, before we start, uh, check and see if anyone has any conflicts or disclosures that they would like to make today. Thank you. Seeing none, we can move to the consent agenda. These are items which uh, do not need a public hearing uh, or otherwise look like they are headed for an easy approval. The only item on today's consent agenda is the documentation of deliberations for the official map amendment 2022-I-0047-4850 North Federal. Does anyone wish to pull that from the consent agenda? Seeing none, I would entertain a motion for the approval of the consent agenda. I move to approve the consent agenda. Second. Moved by Jordan, seconded by Mary. We'll go ahead and do a, a, a roll call. Claude. Aye. Jordan. Aye. Heidi. Aye. Jill. Aye. Gosha. Aye. Mary. Aye. Melissa. Aye. And I vote aye as well. The consent agenda is approved. Thank you. We will now open the public hearing for official map amendment application 2023-I-00084 rezoning multiple properties owned by Denver Parks and Recreation from various zone districts to OSA. Public hearing is open and we will start with, I believe, a staff presentation by Fran Benefield. Good afternoon, members of the planning board. My name is Fran Benefiel. Uh, with planning services, and today I will be presenting a legislative rezoning request for 22 park properties to be rezoned from multiple zone districts into open space OSA zone district. Let's start with the request. This is a request that comes from the Executive Director of Community Planning and Development on behalf of Parks and Recreations to rezone 22 properties to open space zone district. Rezoning these properties to OSA will bring them into an appropriate zone district to allow them to be preserved for park and recreational purposes and to be developed and improved as parks, open space, recreation, and park maintenance uses. The requested OSA district is intended to protect and preserve public parks that are owned, operated, and leased by the city for park purposes. Let's take a look at where these parks are located and their context. As you can see on this slide, these sites are all over the city. Uh, they are in nine of the 11 districts and in 15 different statistical neighborhoods. 
In this list, you can see the name of each park and the current zoning. Half the properties on this list retain zoning from former chapter 59, which includes some old beauties. And the other half are a combination of residential, mixed use, and other open space zoning like OSB and OSC. You can see here, uh, this is just for you to be aware that there's a couple of viewplanes here that affect uh, two of the parks, uh, three of the parks. So three of the properties, including the rezoning, are impacted by viewplanes. Viewplanes are ordinances that dictate the maximum possible building height allowed in specific areas. The table on the slide details the specific ma maximum heights allowed for the properties that are part of this rezoning. Any future development on these properties would be subject to the maximum height dictated by the relevant viewplane. While none of the rezoning sites is located in a historic district, the Four Mile Historic Park, which is one of the properties included in this rezoning, includes the Four Mile House, which is a city-designated landmark structure. All demolition or new construction within the landmark designation boundary will require review and approval by the Landmark Preservation Commission to ensure changes are compatible with the character of the historic designation. There is a wide range of existing land uses on the properties included, included within this rezoning. While many of the properties already have an open space related land use, some of the properties currently have other uses and are either adjacent to existing parks or will be used for expansion of those parks or have been identified as future open spaces. This is just a few. So here you can see basically nine of the 22 properties. I'm not going to go over each one, but it the staff report has an appendix that includes the 22 properties. There is also a variety of existing building forms and scales on the properties included within this rezoning. While many of the properties are undeveloped open space, some of the properties currently have park-related buildings, such as maintenance facilities. For the purposes of this presentation, I randomly pick a few of the parks to show you their land use, current zoning, and context. But of course, you can find the detail on, for each park in the staff report. So here you can see that mostly they're either vacant, they are currently used as parks, they are open space. But uh, I wanted to show you that one, for example, unnamed Kentucky and Irvine. It's a vacant lot, but it has a fence. And then, of course, Carla Madison Recreation Center. I think probably everyone is familiar with that one. So it, it's a variety of different land uses. Now let's move on to the process. Informational notice of this application was sent out on July 20th. Planning board held an informational item meeting on September 20th. And currently we have the case tentatively scheduled for city council public hearing on December 11th. As of the date of the staff report, one letter of opposition was received from a neighboring property, property owner near Four Mile Historic Park. The letter expressed concerns that the requested zoning could lead to other undesirable aesthetics at the park. Temporary events and fences are allowed at this park under the existing and the proposed zone district, so nothing will change. Staff also receive a couple of emails asking questions on the rezoning, which were promptly answered. And we actually just received another one uh, five minutes ago, but it was just asking questions. Now moving on to the review criteria in the Denver zoning code. 
For a legislative rezoning to be recommended for approval by the planning board, it must be found that the requested map amendment is consistent with three review criteria found on the Denver zoning code. Our role as staff planners is to evaluate the requested district, in this case, the OSA, against these three criteria. The first criteria uh, in this rezoning request is that it must be consistent with the adopted plans. There are 14 adopted plans that apply to a requested rezoning. We have Comprehensive Plan 2040, Blueprint Denver, Game Plan for a Healthy City, and 11 other small area plans. Uh, save you some time. We're gonna skip Compline because it's very general and you can reference that one in the staff report. And we're gonna skip to Blueprint. Proposed rezoning includes properties that are within the suburban, urban edge, urban general, urban, urban center, and district neighborhood contexts. Parks are not only appropriate, but are also aspirational in all neighborhood contexts. Therefore, the proposed rezoning is consistent with all neighborhood context designations. Blueprint Denver defines the sites within the proposed rezoning as a variety of future places. The OSA zone district is appropriate in all future places. As described in Blueprint Denver, the growth strategy is intended to strengthen our existing neighborhoods through careful planning and field development. As the city experiences increasing population, it will also see an increase in the need for parks and open space. Preserving existing parks and facilitating the development of new parks is critical to supporting Denver's growth strategy. Blueprint Denver is structured around the concept of complete neighborhoods. One of the three elements of a complete neighborhood is quality of life infrastructure, which ref refers to the places, trees, plants, waterways, parks, and outdoor spaces that stitch together our communities and contribute to the health, needs, comfort, and environmental resilience and social, social connectedness of Denver. The first policy under quality of life infrastructure is to expand tools and regulations to ensure high quality parks and outdoor public spaces keep pace with Denver's growth. The proposed rezoning aims to rezone existing parks or areas that are intended to become parks to align with the current or future use. This, is not on, this not only reinforces that existing parks should remain parks in the future, but it also facilitates redevelopment of new parks, locations where city policy and community input have determined they are appropriate and needed. We're gonna take a quick look at game plan for a healthy city. Um, it is an adopted supplement to Comprehensive Plan 2040 and part of the larger coordinated planning efforts that include the development of Blueprint Denver. Game plan for a healthy city provides both a vision and a strategic roadmap for the future of Denver's parks, hundreds of facilities and recreation programs and 20,000 acres of park landscapes. Rezoning to allow for a recreation center and more park space is consistent with the plan's recommendations with a which are essential to Blueprint Denver vision for a city where every neighborhood is complete. The proposed rezoning includes properties that are included in 11 completed small area plans. While the specific language varies across these small area plans, they are all consistent with the citywide policy that parks are a critical part of the neighborhoods and that they are appropriate across the city. Moving on to criteria number two and three, staff also finds that the requested rezoning meets the next two criteria. The rezoning will result in uniformity of district regulations, and it will also improve public health, safety, and welfare, general welfare by preserving current parks and facilitating the creation of more public park space. The proposed rezoning will allow the city to continue to add park and recreation facilities while 
which are shown to improve health in several ways. For example, access to parks and recreation facilities has been shown to increase physical activity. The closer people live to a park and the safer they feel in the park, they're more likely to walk or bike to those places and utilize the park for physical activity. With that, staff does recommend that planning board recommend approval of the proposed rezoning based on finding that all the review criteria has been met. And we have here the applicant, uh, representative applicant from DPR. Do you have any questions? And happy to answer any questions you have for staff. Great, thank you. So no, no presentation from uh, Parks and Rec. Perfect, thank you. Uh, I know that we have uh, a couple of people signed up for public comment. Uh, so we'll start with those. If you are here to comment on this matter and you have not previously signed up, you can raise your hand if you're in person. If you're attending by Zoom, you can raise your hand in Zoom. And if you're attending by phone and wish to comment, you can raise your hand by pressing star nine. So the first person that I have on my list is Amanda Parrish. Do we have Amanda Parrish online? And it should be, you should now, uh, I think, be able to unmute yourself. You will have three minutes to speak and uh, we will have a timer going and we'll put that time on the screen as it, as it reaches its end. Uh, Amanda Parrish, if you would go ahead. I'm just gonna be brief. I just wanted to say that I'm in support of this. Great, thank you. <laughs> Rexford Kennedy, who I believe is online, uh, we're going to allow you to talk and you should be able to unmute yourself. Uh, yes, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can, thank you. Yeah, hey, I'm uh, concerned about the uh, area that's designated, designated number thir 13 in Northfield. That is just an open, vacant field with weeds. And we have to go in as the neighborhood and take out trash and and take out trash and cut the cut the weeds down uh, in the areas in an industrial area adjacent to uh, active ball fields and and an active high school. The people that the kids that utilize the high school and the ball fields, the people that use the ball fields, they end up parking along the street of this open vacant field, this vacant lot, and it congests, it adds congestion to traffic. I think if you designate this area as open space, that that will not give us the opportunity or the city of Denver the op opportunity to come in and in the future install parking in this space, possibly a uh, parking structure which is much needed for this high school and also the people that utilize these fields because it's utilized so heavily that people once again park on the streets and the kids park in the neighborhoods during the day. So if this area is designated open space, I think that would negate the possibility for us to eventually build a parking structure or maybe even add a much needed uh, middle school, which needs to be built in this area. And that if it's open space, that would make this area not possible for maybe even building a middle school in this area that's much needed. And I would also beg that every person on this planet board, planning board, take a look at every, every area that's designated to be changed to open space 
can think hardly. I mean, think, think, think about it. You know, we shouldn't have all this open space in the city and county of Denver. I've been a residence here, a resident here for 50 years, and this city needs to grow. If we constrain it with all this open space, it, it limits the growth of our city. Thank you. Thank you. I have nobody else who signed up. Is there anyone else online who is here to speak on this item? Please feel free to raise your hand or if you're attending by phone, press star nine to let us know you'd like to speak. Okay, seeing nobody, no other public comment. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I missed one. Yes, please. And you can come on up. She needs to come here for the microphone. You'll come up to the podium here. And I'm sorry, I'd ask you to state your, your name and if you're comfortable in your address. I neglected to ask earlier for that. Yes, you can just speak right there. You don't. Hi, my name is Lily Joe. I live on 1535 Hudson Street, which is Park Hill and Colfax, which is one of the zoning areas that you guys have asked for public comment on. And by the way, I actually walked here along 17th Avenue and then I walked all the way here about an hour and a half. It was a nice day out, 70 degrees. Uh, my public comment um, is in regards to the Colfax itself. Um, right now, I feel a little... Can I... We are hearing testimony about the previous items still. So if you'll hold your comment and we'll ask you to come forward during that hearing. Thank you. Great. And we do see one person by phone. We're going to unmute you if you please give us your name and if you're comfortable your address. And you should uh, you should be allowed you should be able to unmute yourself by pressing star six. Go ahead. Hello, is everybody able to hear me? Yes, we are. Thank you. Excellent. I'm calling uh, in regards to the 47th and Telluride open space. Um, we've been told in this neighborhood that this is going to be a park for many years and we've watched it sit vacant again with weeds and just not being used there's been some proposed planning for this and we've seen a couple submissions for requests from the community for input on what that would look like and i just want to make sure that this proposal is to continue to move that forward so that uh, there is some park space in this area of green valley ranch okay thank you very much is there anyone else going once, going twice? Seeing no further public comment, I will open it up to the board for questions for any of the people who have testified. Heidi. Oh, sorry, I had a question for staff. Yes, Fran. Hmm. Fran, I can't get it get to code fast enough to look at the uses of the open space zones that we are um, zoning these parcels into specifically with the public comment in regards to Northfield um, and their concern about a um, exclusion of, of parking um, and then separately in middle school. I would imagine the middle school use is precluded, but is the parking use precluded? So the uses uh, in OSA are very particular and that's why I printed it here uh, because 
the uses like different to all the other uh, districts in the code. You know how we have the section at the end that shows like what uses are allowed. That's what I was trying to get to. Yeah, you wouldn't find it. In uh, that's why I wasn't getting to it. <laughs> so it is different because the permitted uses, number of uses, and applicable and applicable use limitations in the OSA zone district shall be determined by the manager of parks and recreation. So it is up to the manager of parks and recreation to decide what uses are allowed. Okay, that's great news because what I think is really unique about that whole facility um, is the collaboration between Denver Parks and Rec and um, DPS, right? To build that facility where there are DPS, um, there is actually DPS infrastructure in terms of fields and those sorts of things in Denver Park space. So it's great to hear that that is something that would be up to um, the head of Denver Parks and Rec because it, it doesn't preclude the ability for more collaboration between the two entities in the future. A good example is like if you think one of the properties that we're rezoning is uh, the Carla Madison Rec Center and it has like the Rec Center and then it has a parking lot and it's all going to go to OSA. So. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, I, I, if I recall from September 20th, these uh, legislative rezoning is is really sort of administrative cleanup. These parks have had all kinds of wonky different types of zonings, but they have been utilized as open space. So they are in this batch because that's how they're being utilized. They're just not all uh, up to the current code is that our current zoning so yeah the way you can think about it is like the city slowly purchases properties and it slowly uh, parks buying new sites that want to use as parks and they are zoned something else when they buy them okay so they're still they can still be used as parks because there's ways to get around it uh like there's different uses that like i had a whole conversation with development services about how were they able to use them as parks and you can permit them as a, a recreation center or like a nursery so there's ways to get there but the proper that there's a reason why we have the osa the osa is the right zoning for parks to be used as parks so it's like again it's kind of like you could say like an administrative uh, rezoning but also it's big enough that we knew that the public was going to want to know. So it's it was important to do the community outreach and to put the signs and let people know that we're actually rezoning two parks. Okay. And so for, because this is a legislative, it, it encompasses multiple properties. If, for instance, in Northfield, if that property um, community members and, you know, got, you know, organized and a school is desired on that property within they be able to go, or whoever petitions, be able to go and do a re rezoning of that as a one-off, even though it was approved under this umbrella as a legislative rezone? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mary. Yeah, um, just in terms of, because I think the concern for both the gentleman that we heard today on the the, um, number 13 and the one that was in the comments are really about what happens on the site. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit on how the public could interact to help with the programming of what is actually happening in those park spaces. And I think I could uh, ask Mallory to answer that question. Good afternoon. I'm Mallory Royball. I am the East District Parks Planner with Parks and Rec. 
Um, and yes, we have public uh, design uh, projects out there where we do plenty of outreach with public to get some kind of concept in place. And then we reach out to them again in the design phase. So the question about 47th and Telluride, for instance, we have already uh, developed a vision plan that was community driven. Um, and so that has begun the process into the design and construction phase. So we are actually out for bid currently uh, for that design phase, which should be starting up very, very soon. And that will apply to the, the original vision plan that we just had, a, um, I think it was two summers ago. Perfect. And um, how can folks either get involved in that or like track the progress? Sure. Uh, we update all of our projects on our webpage with Denver Parks and Rec. We have a project page for every project that's ongoing or recently completed. We also have archived if you need to look back at old projects. Um, and that is an opportunity for a community to either reach out to whoever the contact is for the project manager for that project um, or to be involved if there's ongoing surveys. Uh, we do uh, different forms of outreach. We will do surveys um, out to the community during those, those design phases. Um, we also coordinate with uh, the registered neighborhood organizations uh, through social media like Nextdoor, our uh, website with uh, Facebook postings and things like that. So there's ample opportunity that even if you're not involved in the, the existing outreach, if it's ongoing, uh, you can look back at projects or you can see upcoming surveys or other meetings. Thank you. Yes, Heidi. Again. I have a follow-up to that just really quickly and probably for Fran for planning, but it follows up on that specifically on the 47th and Telluride. Fran, can you just speak to how this rezoning today um, supports the efforts that Parks just described about 47th and Telluride for that person who is making public comment? So I am having a hard time remembering what's the current land use on that one. And I don't have it. I can tell you in one second here. I think you've got it in our staff report. Oh, I have it here. So this one is actually currently park open space in the land use. And it's an old beauty. Um, so in this case, it's like getting it out of old zoning, basically, because again, like, as we said, like here we have 22 properties and half of them are old code. So we're doing a big effort like citywide to try to get out of old code. So while we were working with DPR, we thought this would be a good opportunity to get those properties into a new code. Okay, so it is supportive of those efforts that the community has been making with Parks and Recs to assure that this becomes the park that the community has been working on with the city. Yeah. Thank you. Any further questions from planning board members? Seeing none, I will go ahead and close the public hearing and open it up for planning board deliberations. From prepared to start. Yeah, Adele. I, it, it sounds straightforward and I, I love the comprehensive approach and streamlining and batching or however you guys, uh, you know, um, talk about it, but it, it makes sense to update everything. Um, and I understand there's more to come but um, saves time to, to do it in this fashion and I'll support it. I just wanted to say that I will be in support to thank everybody who came out and gave, gave public comment and specifically um, to respond to Mr. Kennedy, I believe is the way his last name was, was um, pronounced. Greatly appreciate that um, 
that charge to pause and be thoughtful about what we rezone to open space when our when our city is having such a housing crisis. Um, it's refreshing to hear um, a citizen have concern for our future and the residents that we need to house. Um, and you know, rest assured, we have full faith in our staff that there there's still a need for open space um, for those folks who are housed to have a quality of life. Um, and that this body and the city is all very actively engaged in working on um, addressing our housing crises. And I just want to acknowledge the work that I know went into this and say how much we appreciate it, Fran. And the staff report, the, the presentation that the public saw today is somewhat of an abbreviated version of what, what we got in our packets, which included incredible detail about each and every parcel. And I appreciate what went into that. Um, and I appreciate that the staff report, I think, covered it thoroughly in a somewhat abbreviated manner. And I hope that as we go forward with more of these, uh, that we'll continue to think about how to expedite this, um, including perhaps once we've been through initial stuff, whether it's appropriate to put these on the consent agenda in the future. So that's all I have. Any further comments? If not, we'll entertain a motion. I move to recommend that city council approve application number 2023I-00084, rezoning multiple properties owned by Denver Parks and Recreation from various zone districts to OSA, finding that the applicable review criteria have been met. Thank you. A second. So moved by Jordan, second by Angel. We'll do a roll call vote. Claude. Yeah, Jordan. Aye. Heidi. Aye. Angel. Aye. Aye. Mary. Aye. Melissa. Aye. And I vote aye as well. That is carried. Thank you very much. Uh, next up. Uh, Next on the agenda is official map amendment application 2022-I-00132, rezoning multiple properties on East Colfax between Grant and Yosemite from various zone districts to include the DO-8. And this will be presented by Libby Glick. And the hearing is now open. We'll start with Libby staff presentation. Okay. There we go. Um, thank you all. I'm Libby Glick with Community Planning and Development, and I'll be presenting the legislative rezoning proposal to map the design overlay eight or the DO8 to portions of East Colfax. So first we'll discuss the request. Libby, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think we need to share. The oh, screen. yep. Thank you. <laughs> there we go. Oh boy. We've only been doing this for what, like three years now? <laughs> all still <doing> it. <laughs> Okay, let's try that again. Uh, so first we'll discuss the request, then the existing context, the process, and then we'll finish with the review criteria. And so council members Sawyer and Hines are sponsoring the rezoning and are proposing to rezone portions of East Colfax within two blocks of a proposed bus rapid transit station to include the active centers and corridors design overlay or the DO8. And this rezoning is intended to implement adopted plan guidance in both the East Central and East Area plans. 
Um, so the DO8 is, it is, is a design overlay that requires non-residential active uses or commercial uses for a portion of the street frontage. It limits the building forms to shop front and townhouse. Um, it changes the build to and setback requirements to allow for more space for pedestrians and outdoor dining. Um, it, you know, the there's also an increased minimum setback for residential portions of the structure to allow for more porches and patios in front of um, the front door. And it allows for permanent art as the only transparency alternative and then requires a minimum 14 foot height for the first floor. So now we'll um, discuss the existing conditions. So the proposed rezoning spans four city council districts, five, eight, nine, and 10. Council members Sawyer and Hines representing districts five and 10 respectively are sponsoring this proposal. Council members Lewis and Watson of districts eight and nine are also aware of this rezoning, uh, but they're not sponsors because they joined city council midway through this process. Um, additionally, former council members Herndon and Cedabaca, who had worked on this proposal prior to their departure from city council, are supportive of this pr proposed rezoning, and you can see their letters in the application. Um, and this legislative proposal includes 10 neighborhoods, North Capitol Hill, City Park, City Park West, Cheeseman Park, City Park, Congress Park, South Park Hill, Hale, Montclair, and East Colfax. <laughs> The existing zone districts are all Main Street districts in the urban center, general urban and urban and urban edge context with heights from three to eight stories. All of the existing zone districts will remain. This proposal just maps the DO8 in addition to these existing zone districts. The City Park Natural History Museum viewplane is applicable to the western portion of the rezoning. The maximum heights allowed range from 78 feet to 125 feet. And again, this proposed rezoning will not change the existing heights because it is keeping the underlying zone districts. There are several historic landmarks located along East Colfax and then two landmark districts. You can see two of the examples of structures there um, and all construction within the historic districts and landmark are subject to landmark design review. There are a variety of existing uses along the corridor, including commercial and retail, office, mixed use, parking, cultural, public and quasi-public and residential. And most of the surrounding uses to the north and south are mainly multi and single unit residential. So this slide shows um, the existing building form and scale. So you can see portions of the corridor, um, like this one that's farther on to the, on the west side, have buildings that are close to the street with commercial uses on the ground floor, similar to what the overlay is proposing and like what the overlay is intended to keep along this corridor, um, while other parts of the corridor are more auto-oriented with large setbacks um, as shown in the bottom picture. So the council members are also proposing a grace period for projects that were submitted for concept by July 19th, 2023, which was the date of the notification for this application. Um, and that after they also have to receive approval by or for the site plan by December 19th, 2025. Um, and there are currently 12 projects that are under review that um, would be eligible for this grace period. So now we'll discuss the rezoning process. Um, this application was complete in mid-July, and the informational notice was sent out on July 19th, and we are before you today for the planning board hearing. 
And prior to the application submittal, the council members conducted significant outreach, including town hall meetings, an online survey, and meetings with property owners and organizations. Um, so we have not received any comments from the registered neighborhood organizations along the corridor, um, but we have received two comments from neighboring residents. One commented in support that this rezoning will make Col Colfax more vibrant and walkable, and another um, that is concerned that 1801 East Colfax specifically is not included because there is a drive-through planned for that site, and so they would have liked to have seen it included. Um, I will note that that property is not within two blocks of a proposed BRT station, which is why um, it was not included in the initial proposal. And then we received one comment like a half an hour before the meeting started um, from the Goddard School, um, and they had concerns over they plan to um, do some renovations, and I think they had concerns with the two-foot setback that the overlay would require. So for the final portion of this presentation, we'll discuss the review criteria. Because this rezoning is legislative, there are three review criteria that need to be met. The first criterion is consistency with adopted plans, and there are four plans that are applicable to this rezoning. This rezoning meets several of the strategies in the comprehensive plan, which are outlined in the staff report, so I'll just go over the subsequent three. The future contexts in Blueprint Denver are mapped as downtown, urban center, general urban, urban, and urban edge. And this proposed rezoning will not change any of the existing contexts along the corridor. Most of the corridor is mapped as a center or corridor um, for the future place type. And these are mixed use places of different scales and provide spaces for people to engage in social activities and entertainment. There are small portions of the corridor designated as low medium residential. These are primarily residential, but may also include nodes of commercial and retail uses. And all of the properties included in this rezoning currently have main street designation. And that is, again, not proposed to change, um, but you know, the DO8 will facilitate um, you know, a place to engage in social activities and entertainment in line with the blueprint guidance. Colfax is designated as a main street arterial, which is characterized by a mix of uses consistent with the DO8 designation. And then several of the north-south streets are mixed use arterials, residential arterials and collectors, and then local streets. The growth area um, is mostly designated as community centers and corridors. This is where we anticipate to see 20% of new jobs and 25% of new housing. And then a few of the portions are designated as all other areas of the city, which is anticipated to see 10% of new jobs and 20% of new housing. And this rezoning will allow for more growth in new jobs because of the ground floor commercial use requirement. And then because this rezoning is over five acres, it is subject to the equity analysis and blueprint Denver. The corridor generally has high access to opportunity, particularly great access to parks, transit and centers and corridors. And then for uh, vulnerability to involuntary displacement, the neighborhoods west of Colorado Boulevard um, and then also East Colfax um, are more vulnerable to involuntary displacement. Um, but there is no specific development proposed with this rezoning and all new developments will be subject to the city's mandatory affordable housing requirements. And then for housing diversity, and this varies along the corridor, there's greater di housing diversity in City Park West and Congress Park and less diversity in South Park Hill and a portion of Montclair. 
And this rezoning will likely not directly impact housing diversity, but it will support complete neighborhoods by promoting space for neighborhood um, serving commercial uses. And then there are mostly retail jobs along the corridor and the DOA may have a positive impact on jobs diversity by creating new opportunities for employment because of the ground floor active use requirement. And this rezoning also meets several strategies in Blueprint Denver. It will ensure pedestrian friendly environments, encourage mixed use developments in transit rich areas, and it is a larger scale legislative rezoning. So now moving to the East Central Area Plan, um, which is applicable to properties west of Colorado Boulevard. So um, it designates certain areas along Colfax for active ground floor uses, which this map is kind of small, but it's the, the dotted area along Colfax. Um, but essentially the, the vision in the plan is that these areas should be um, near historic streetcar stops or, near, or areas near transit stations, um, which is exactly why this DOA is proposed within two blocks of a proposed BRT stop. Um, and this rezoning also meets several, many of the strategies in the East Central Area Plan, um, including improving design quality in centers and corridors with ground floor activation, discouraging auto-oriented uses along Colfax, and helping businesses to prepare for BRT with a pedestrian-friendly environment. And then um, the East Area Plan is applicable to properties on the east side of Colorado Boulevard. And again, very similarly, it also designates areas um, for active ground floor uses. And um, those are also near historic streetcar stops and adjacent to transit. Um, so again, why the DOA is being proposed for where it's being proposed. Um, and then again, the East Area Plan, very similar to the East Central Plan where you know it talks about um, uh, improving design quality by including ground floor acti activation, discouraging auto-oriented uses, and then helping businesses prepare for BI BRT um, by creating these pedestrian-friendly areas. And this legislative proposal also meets the next two criteria. It will result in uniformity of district regulations. It will also further the public health, safety, and welfare of the area by promoting a more pedestrian-friendly environment and facilitating a true mix of uses along Colorado Oh, sorry, along Colfax Avenue with ground floor commercial. So finding all three criteria have been met, staff recommends a planning board recommend approval of the proposed rezoning. And that concludes the staff presentation. Thank you, Libby. Uh, I see the councilwoman is here. Are you here to speak on it? Yes. Great. I invite you to come on up, please. All right. Do you want to grab the again? Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's so great to see you. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, for those of you I don't know, uh, I'm Councilwoman Amanda Sawyer. I represent District 5. I am one of the sponsors of this legislative rezoning. Um, my amazing aide, Logan, is handing out to you something that's also in the report, but wanted to bring hard copies for you all. Um, and there should be a few extra people in the audience would like to see them. Um, this is directly related to the survey um, that we did throughout the community and the community outreach. So when we came to planning board, um, I think it was like a month ago, wasn't it, Libby? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we talked about was the survey that we did and the extraordinary uh, positive responses that we got. So I wanted to bring it to you to show you all kind of, um, you'll see a heat map in there of where the responses were located. Um, You'll see each of the questions that we asked related to each of the parts of 
the DO8 overlay in particular and the responses from uh, residents to those. This is a statistically valid survey. Um, and I'm Logan, do you remember, I can't remember off the top of my head what the uh, margin of error is. Uh, I believe it was 5%. I think it was around 5% yeah. as well. Um, so as you can see from all of the survey responses, it's well over um, the 5% margin of error um, for support of all of these different proposals. Um, so happy to answer any questions. I want to say a huge thank you to Libby, who has done a ton of work um, on this and just here to you know help support, answer any questions you guys might have about this. I know we've talked about this extensively, um, but you know there are, I think, three um, resident property owners who are who have concerns and um, you know we've tried to work with those property owners and we've also tried to uh, specifically write in an extension so um, any property that had Libby I'm looking at you had filed um, for a com concept review by the date we filed um, is exempted as long as their site development plan is completed and approved by the end of December 2025. So a lot of time in here for those 12, 13 properties, yeah, 12. 12 properties um, to complete their reviews and be exempted from the DO8 overlay. We tried to be as fair as we possibly could. There are a couple who are not going to make it. Um, and that is, you know, what it is. We, we've got to treat everyone the same. Um, so we came up with as, as fair of a plan as we possibly could have while still ensuring that we're treating everyone equally, um, you know, across the board um, whose property might be affected within the DOA overlay areas of Colfax. So um, happy to answer any questions about that. Again, thank you for your consideration. And I'm here to help however I can. I think there's probably a couple of other uh, speakers who may be speaking as well. Thank you. Thank you. And Olivia, I assume I don't see uh, Councilman Hines. I think he's stuck in a meeting. Yeah. Okay, great. So he's going to try and be here as soon as he can. And he said okay. he was really sorry he's stuck in a meeting. Good. Well, if he, when he makes it, we'll be happy to hear from him. In the meantime, I think we can move forward great. to public comment. Uh, first on the list that I have is Robin Rothman, who I believe is here in person invite you to the podium and I would just uh, mention that uh, my understanding is is that Christopher O'Reilly who is also here has signed up to speak and ceded his time to Ms. Rothman so you will have six minutes. So we're just gonna have a little delay. I don't wanna, um, I had a little COVID exposure this weekend and I don't, I don't wanna know if we could, Yeah, I don't know if we can speak. Can she be heard from somewhere else by the microphones? Yeah, I mean, all over the room. It's fine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. All right, so if you wanna stay at the table, you, there okay. you go. Okay, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Council's bylaws to time. It's our students. It's our students. My name is Robin Rothman. I reside at 1526 North William Street, part of the historic district known as Lyman's Addition to City Park West. I'm a 23-year resident at this address and 30 years total in Denver. I'm asking today to apply the new zoning, uh, Colfax zoning overlay such as, is, such as it is to a long vacant 100% new construction-ready land parcel at 1801 East Colfax, for which at the moment there is no submitted site development plan for review. We learned in mid-August that this site will likely become the new home of a jack-in-the-box drive-through. 
I submitted advanced comments to the planning board last week about why a fast food restaurant in particular, Jack in the Box, is inappropriate for the parcel location. I'm prepared to answer any questions related to it. But having watched the playback of the final meetings of the DOA application, my discussion has shifted to vagaries of this application as it applies to the development of new fast food restaurants. Therefore, I'm asking also for a second review of this part of the application to clarify exactly how DOA will dissuade car-centric businesses like fast food restaurants from being developed, why so few dissuasive elements appear in DOA, and who exactly wants to look forward 10, 20, or 30 years in the future to see the lasting legacy they've left behind in the form of one more fast food restaurant. <laughs> for reference, the Taco Bell at Colfax and Williams has just passed 30 years in business. It's contradictory for the city to spend $250 million backed by federal dollars uh, to develop a new BRT system while enabling car-centric businesses like fast food drive throughs It's contradictory to speak endlessly about pedestrian-friendly, vibrant, healthy, active spaces when fast food restaurants will be allowed further development on Colfax with so few restraints. Uh, the Taco Bell at the northwest corner of Colfax Williams is within the overlay but requires no changes. Across the street, is new construction, and I understand it's outside of the overlay, so the developers have practically no constraints as they build this new restaurant. Of course, ideally for this space, the highest use of land would be housing with retail underneath, but let's say the new construction moves forward without DOA, and there's a compromise between the city and the developers that customers enter through the already beleaguered alley between Colfax and High Streets and then exit to Williams. We'll have an extraordinary daily traffic conflict as customers from both restaurants exit onto Williams. And I'll just invite you to go visit the Taco Bell. They have a, a sidewalk cut and entrance and exit on the Colfax side, which is unbelievable, and on the Williams side as well. Um, I had a little bit of confusion while I was watching the final president uh, presentation of the DOA application, a chart of what would and would not do was displayed prominently on camera. Um, I think many of you are probably familiar with this, and I'm sorry, I don't have a hookup, but you've got this great chart in green and peach. Uh, the third item is that it will prohibit vehicle-oriented drive-through development. On the next page, uh, requirements in design overlays DOA, no drive-through services building forms. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Tucked further into the application on pages seven, 17 and 18, where it attempts to show how DO8 matches already adopted plans like East Central Area and East Area Plan, we begin to find these exceptions. Instead of the word prohibit fast food drive throughs we find several references to the modification of existing regulations meant to simply discourage this kind of development. During the last meeting, it was con confirmed quite emphatically that new fast food restaurants will be allowed on Colfax and may even have sidewalk cuts. The aim of the application's modifications appear to be that things like expanded height requirements, landscaping, and thoughtfully placed entrance exit traffic patterns will dissuade this kind of development. If you visited Sliceworks at Colfax in Washington, highly recommended, then you're familiar with how a two-story high-volume restaurant can work effectively. Frankly, it's a bit of a bit of landscaping cannot overcome the urban heat island effects yielded from an enormous amount of blacktop required for a drive-through. So for my reading under DOA, all a developer needs to do to have their new fast food restaurant is to meet requirements for building frontage along Colfax with a drive-through behind it, add some height and consider entrances and exits. Minus the height requirement, a good example of what this looks like is the McDonald's at Colfax in Pennsylvania. 
There's lots of building frontage. You can enter, turn right off of Colfax into the alley. And as best as I can tell, the only way to get out is to make a right turn on to Pennsylvania. Um, in that last meeting, uh, I was watching the replay. Um, there was an, I wanted to note that there are earlier parts of the application that there will be no drive-through services building forms. Um, however, I listened at length to Abe Barge, and this is no criticism of him, this is really all about the plan, um, that he called the situation with fast food restaurants tricky. In fact, perhaps the most tricky element of this whole thing. And so um, I wonder what's so tricky about components of an overlay aimed to promote engaged and vibrant spaces, pedestrian-friendly streetscapes, increased use of multimodal transit, and highest land use purposes like housing with rents. Grand, ground floor retail doesn't seem tricky to me, but if it but if it is so tricky, I wonder if the dissuasive elements proposed are sufficient. It's an understatement to say that our fast food restaurant at 1801 Colfax will not complement the best features the DOA offers and will in fact detract from the goals of this plan. Uh, I want to thank you for listening. I know I'm not in the DOA right now for this particular parcel, but I feel like it's a huge lost opportunity. We're literally talking about across the street. Like you could chuck a taco right across the street. <laughs> it's a new property. I want to thank you for listening. I'm available to answer questions to the extent that I'm only a marketing communications consultant and not an urban planner. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, Councilman Hines, did you want to address us tonight? Uh, you don't have to. <laughs> Maybe Councilman. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> do you want me to? Where do you want, where do you want me to? Uh, you can come on up. Okay. Come on, come on up here. How about right? Oh, wait, here. Okay, we do have a podium. Is fine. Uh, and I'm on camera as well. Yeah. Hi, my name is Chris Hines. I serve on Denver City Council, representing District 10, a Center City District. Um, I uh, am excited to co-sponsor this with, with Councilmember Sawyer. Um, the, this originally, um, the thought process originally came because uh, there was a, a plan actually to put in a self-storage facility um, just north of Colfax on Pearl. Um, and uh, that ended up not coming to fruition, but that was something that, uh, that was a, a bit concerning for me. Um, Right about the same time, there was another thought that a uh, credit union or bank was going to put in a, um, a drive-through uh, teller system, only drive-through only drive um, at 14th and Grant. And um, that just seemed really concerning to me because it's right next to the, uh, to the state capitol. Um, it is in Cap, uh, uh, Cap Hill, which is uh, the median age of Cap Hill is uh, 31. The median income is $41,000 a year. If we're going to put density anywhere in our city, that seems like the ideal place to do, uh, the ideal place to put it. Uh, more than a third of households don't own cars at all. Um, so let's lift up the, um, uh, the people in our city and attenuate stuff. So for me, the, um, those are the two data points that made me think about this process. Uh, uh, Councilmember Black had already uh, considered this in her district, uh, Councilmember uh, Sandoval had already considered it in hers, and uh, and so um, the the tagline that I have here is "Let's prioritize people over stuff," and uh, and really that was the impetus behind the DOA overlay from my perspective. Um, we've held we've held multiple uh, community meetings, and uh, we've gotten a lot of feedback. We've gotten you know a, uh, a, a
robust amount of feedback. There has been uh, folks who want more on one end, more on the uh, on the opposite end, and uh, and so this is like many other uh, uh, pieces of legislation or overlays, um, is meant to be a compromise. So, uh, frankly, I would be happy if we never had a self storage facility on Colfax ever again. Not even just in the highlighted areas around the uh, uh, BRT stops on Colfax. Um, I would be happy if there was no drive through. Um, you know, got rid of the um, got rid of the McDonald's, got rid of the Chick Fil A. But that's you know, that's my opinion. That's not a, uh, the opinion of the majority of people in in our city. So um, it is meant to be a compromise. I want to thank Councilmember Sawyer for helping with the compromise. Um, very interested in your thoughts and. Um, uh, and and if I can answer any questions along the way, please, I'm here and available for you. Thank you. Uh, so next on my list, I have Louis Joe. Again, my name is Lily Joe, and I represent um, Colfax and Hudson area. And there is a planning. Well, there are several things being planned around my neighborhood including taking down the Dollar Tree store and then turning it into a 250 um, apartment complex. And that's great, that's wonderful. I believe it's gonna be done in five years or whatever the time frame is. The other side of it and on Hudson and Colfax is a motel that right now is an eyesore. And it has been an eyesore because for many years it has bed bug. And I'm not sure if that issue has ever been addressed. Um, so on upon renovation, please make sure that there is a um, you know eradication of bed bugs as there are houses, residential houses nearby that does not need to catch bed bugs. Um, my my comment is that regarding the hotel itself, I know you guys want to build a hotel. I mean, it isn't a motel structure already. So I think the plan is just to have a, a motel there. And I, I believe the first floor is the first floor, if I'm not mistaken, it's going to be converted into a business zone. Is that correct? Can somebody verify that for me? A portion will require commercial use. Right. And I'm I'm recommending that the entire thing becomes a business condominium because we can have hairdressers, we can have, you know, nail salon people and um, et cetera, there, including me. I would love to have my acupuncture clinic there. Um, it would be very, very convenient. Um, and the other reason is we don't really need another, we don't need a motel hotel in that zone because it is, it is residential and we have downtown hotels and elsewhere that they can have access to. Um, okay, I believe that covers it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I don't have anybody else signed up in advance. I do see someone here in the room. I invite you to come up and give us your name and address, and you will have three minutes. And if anyone else online is to testify, please be sure to raise your hand on Zoom and we'll get to you as well. Thank you. Hello, my name is Andy Baldiga. I'm with the Mulhern Group Architects, uh, 1400 Glenarm Suite 300. Um, I also am a volunteer on Colfax and actually a, a neighbor. Um, some, some people spoke earlier are neighbors of mine, so I, I'm wearing, I think, multiple hats today. Um, I initially want to start off by thanking the council members for all the outreach they've done. Um, it certainly has. We've been part of that team that's been working to trying to find the right balance um, with the DOA uh, for some of the de future development sites. Um, 
I think as you're hearing today, there's it, it's uh, like a lot of things that come forward in zoning. It's not perfect, but I think we've all been hearing the erosion of Colfax to auto-oriented uses is happening faster uh, than we'd like, especially with the forthcoming um, BRT infrastructure uh, improvements. I mean, that's scheduled to start next year. Um, the city's spending tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on that um, with the intent that it provides better service and supports housing. So, um, you know, it's frustrating to see gas stations opening across from what are gonna be future sites directly across from a uh, BRT stop. So I, I think I'm here today to support the current zoning as it is, um, but also just point out a couple of uh, issues that I think are important to bring forward because they're happening across the entire city. And I think it's, this is a great time for the BRT to be look because the BRT is going in on Colfax to look at our east-west corridors as a whole. Um, 44th, 38th Avenue, um, other corridors throughout the city. And I bring the attention to the east-west corridor streets because DOA, you know, is focused on, um, well, I should say most of the blocks in our city have the front end, of 20, you know, 25 foot wide lot as a starting point, 125 feet deep and the primary street on that narrow edge and an alley in the rear. When you get to Colfax, you turn that 90 degrees and all of a sudden you've got 125 feet at least on your primary street, sometimes, many times no alley and side streets. And so the proportions are off and it impacts the development opportunities in different ways. And I'm sorry, where's the timer on this? What am I supposed to look at for the, just curious. It'll show up. I'll share okay. it. Okay, 45, I see it. The, um, so just look at, I think there's an effort here. The city should look at corridors as a whole, east and west, and look find what really works on those east-west streets, especially when they're transit-oriented. Another issue is the DOTI, um, Department of Transportation, is requiring uh, seven, they want 17 feet of the sidewalk. Nobody opposes having wider sidewalks. What the DOA even increases that to an extra two feet. So you're losing six to nine feet, depending on what exists there today. The question is, why does that have to go from the ground to the sky? Why can't that just occur on the ground level and the building cantilever over? That would preserve sidewalk space as we all want, but also residential and office for affordable housing and everything else, that to the sky. Thank you for listening and thank you. Thank you. Do we have anyone else in the room who is here to testify on this item? And I don't see anybody online raising their hands, so I will open it up to questions from the board. You can wait there. If, okay. if somebody has a question, they'll they'll tell they'll let you know who they want it <laughs> directed to. Uh, I think Jordan, I saw first, and then Angela, and then Mary. So I have a question for the two council members. Okay. I suppose based on this document I, I just just a point of clarification to make. Yeah. uh you have the proposal one through i'm not sure how many six i think six. yeah and those are all components of the doh that's right. sort of broken down into individual proposals i'm curious it looks like they all are approved of yes significantly uh i'm curious though and this is sort of a moot point i suppose but i'm curious if one of them wasn't what how would that pitch would it would it be a new DO or would it be? <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's a really good question. Um, so we had a lot of conversations about the difference between doing a text amendment to the DOA overlay itself 
and doing um, a map amendment to apply the D08 overlay, right? And so what we have here in front of us today is a map amendment to apply the D08 overlay. Um, but we did have conversations about a text amendment. And so we wanted to kind of see, break out, um, you know, what uh, people, if any, what concerns people really had about each of the different elements of it. Um, fortunately, we came to a, a location where everyone wanted all of them and really agreed with it. And, and quite frankly, um, some of the feedback that we received um, made it clear that people wanted this along the entire Colfax corridor between Broadway and Yosemite. Uh, we had a lot of conversations about that feedback and ended up choosing what we uh, the the two blocks on each side of a proposed BRT stop specifically because um, there's just not the density to um, support that amount of retail. And we do want to respect the fact that we want as much housing as possible along the corridor as well. So um, that's how we kind of ended up at that two block, uh, two block on either side of a proposed um, BRT stop. But the reason we asked the questions broken out separately like that was because when we originally started this, we were having, you know, do we do a text amendment and the map amendment? Do we just do? Um, and Gosha, I believe you asked when in our last conversation about um, affordable housing and whether we could exempt affordable housing from the DO8 overlay. Great idea, but same thing, right? That's a text amendment versus a, a map amendment that's applying the DO8 overlay, which is what we um, ended up doing in the end. But that's why you see kind of everything broken out like that. Cause we really wanted to um, ask the questions in a way that people understood what the full consequences of, the, of a map amendment like this would be. And also to see if maybe um, we needed to make some changes to the actual text of the DO8 overlay um, or whether people really felt like they made sense and, and they clearly do. Thank you. Yeah. Great, yeah, um, <clears throat> thank you all um, council people <laughs> for um, presenting this and thank you for um, this comprehensive surveying of mostly these are residents. We, so do I need to, I feel like I'm like, step back, step forward. Yeah, you uh, stay there. <laughs> um, so we, council member Hines come up yeah. and join me um, if that's, Easier. There we do go. My best to run over the power cord again. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, so we actually did. So we not only mailed. We used um, Excel data for the address data for all of the locations along the corridor because the way the assessor, the Denver Assessor's Office works, um, if there are multiple units within a building, only the building property owner gets a notification and we wanted to make sure that everyone was notified. So we used actually went above and beyond use the Excel data so that we have every place that has electricity through Excel um, that we mailed to. And then we also sent that, it was like 6,700 properties. We also hired a door knocking firm to go and deliver um, a flyer to every single one of those addresses all the way along the corridor to ensure that we were connecting with as many people as possible. So, and then out, one block outside yeah. in each direction. So you, what you see in there is residents and businesses. Okay, perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, it's very comprehensive. So I appreciate that in knowing. We don't how... change people's zoning lightly. Right, right, <laughs> no. And, and, and with that, what my question then is more about sort of um, projections and uh, theory testing. You know, um, because I understand the desire here and the end goal um, to revamp and to bring life and vibrancy, um, positivity to this corridor. Did, did you, have you um, 
had any um, models that you've been able to look at either regionally or nationally or what have you, where this theory has been tested that doing this sort of mixed use ground level retail works in, in revitalizing a corridor similar? Um, and um, have you had feedback from potential developers that they'd be interested in this and that doing this kind of mixed use is not a barrier to them coming to East Colfax, like it would become a deterrent to the folks. Do you want to take that one or you want me to go for it? Um, so yes and yes, right? <laughs> um, in all of our, so this has been a two and a half year long, maybe three year at this point long process um, where we did a lot of research into other cities and what, um, you know, what other cities may have done this. Um, I talked to Rocky Piro, who used to be um, our executive director of community planning and development. And he sent me a number of um, images of different locations throughout um, the country and Canada where this has been done um, to, because I had a hard time wrapping my mind around the like, so we can still have a drive through, but it's not gonna be like, how is that gonna work, right? Um, and, and, and in fact, he sent me a, a photo of, um, one building that has this overlay on it that is, uh, and it's a tire shop on the bottom, and then you know the housing above it, and the entrance to the tire shop is in the back, and the parking is in the back. Um, so it, we did a lot of research into it. There are other places. Um, this is very large scale, so I we haven't been able to find anything that is as large scale as what we are proposing here. Um, but in terms of discrete options um you know that where this has been done yes we have we've seen those and in the other outcomes cities. in those scenarios have been very rough. positive okay very positive okay. yeah um and then in terms of tell me what your second so, question was uh, kind of along the oh lines, deterrence it, it, have you had conversations similar to the surveying of residents businesses with potential developers that that yeah we'd be interested or ideas that have come up in feedback sessions where you could start envisioning what might come there in the time frame because this is long term um, this is for new development um, so this is probably decades out when we'll see the full effects of this maybe or yeah. maybe not I don't, I don't know what the time frame looks like it'll, yes this is a 20-year okay plan um you have had a lot of do you want to start since a lot of the current development is in your district yeah um so I in addition to, you know, Councilmember Sawyer talked about national and international comparisons. Um, we got recommend uh, got a recommendation from Councilmember Black to uh, to consider this. Councilmember Hernan uh, was also uh, very early uh, uh, Councilmember interested in uh, in you know the success along uh, the Colfax corridor, and uh, so Councilmember Black had had seen some similar uh, concerns. The um, as you know, we. Um, we vote on zoning based on five criteria and nothing else, nothing more, nothing else, or nothing less. And uh, so Carvana was a, an example of a, a very frustrating conversation on council that was in her district um, that was storing stuff. And boy, wouldn't that be great because it's in a major intersection. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been great if we had been able to have, uh, you know, uh, housing there uh, to take advantage of the, um, the transit connections there. So that was, uh, you know, so we, we had also um, encouragement from, from other council members here in, in Denver, um, in addition to some of the national and international models. Uh, 
Carvana was one of those specific examples. And I was reluctant, yes, because of the five criteria. If I could have voted based on the site, I would have said, no way. But that's, um, that's just the nature of the beast is what we have right now. Um, we on council are, uh, so to, you know, certainly we want to make sure that developers uh, find this palatable, but we on council also want to think long-term uh, because uh, as, an, as an example, Cherry Creek East was literally a dump, a landfill um, 70 years ago. Yeah. And now it's one of the most um, uh, desirable areas of the city. Used to be in my district, now it's in hers. Um, so, uh, you know, we both have familiar with Cherry Creek and Cherry Creek East. Um, and that's the kind of forethought. Also, 70 years ago, Congress Park used to be um, a very undesirable neighborhood. And the folks who have lived there for four decades even talk about, you know, they want to uh, they want to uh, um, celebrate what they have now uh, because where it was um, was uh, was not as celebratory. And so we on council want to have that kind of forward thinking and forward looking. And as as we put in the BRT, uh, so. I guess the premise of what I'm getting at is I believe we did have develop, we have had developers that have been uh, responsive. Uh, we also want to make new developers uh, uh, create interest or, you know, the, um, suddenly become interested uh, because we, we want to have the foresight to make this city what we want it to be, not what developers find palatable just today. Um, but that said, I think that we, we do have developers that, um, that have uh, been excited about the additional um, activation, the, the, the willingness to, to have more um, things along Colfax and the more, um, you know, celebrate, uh, celebration of people. Sorry, I, I should say, you know, activation for people as opposed to things. But uh, the more we can celebrate people in sections, the more we get a vibrant, um, you know, uh, strip of Colfax. Yeah, I, I love the theory, um, and I appreciate that that um, feedback. Um, one more question. Um, what is it? Okay, so as this is a pr pretty um, critical new element, um, you know, to planning and zoning along Colfax, does it? Do you think it'll require going back to the neighborhood planning groups and maybe updating NPI? the applicable NPIs that know the central um, with the East area plan and well, East Central area East plan. City Central. Those two and and because you know the more planning visioning that can be done, I think the better the outcome rather than are we gonna see Taco Bells or this or that. I'm not against Taco Bell. I almost got it on the way over here. <laughs> but but you know just being more um planful and strategic um in, in circling back. I can help you with that. Yeah, yes. Um, so I don't think we'll necessarily reopen the planning process, um, but I think if anything, it might be a good test once you know, once we've done we've done these, this is the third place we're doing the DO8. I think it might be a good thing for us to go back and look at how is it working on Tennyson, how is it working on Santa Fe, and then maybe make modifications from there um, rather than reopening up the NPI plan. Um, but yeah, I think that will be. You know, in Tennyson right now, I think they do have some SDPs that have been approved under the, the DO8. I don't know if anything has, you know, fully been constructed yet or if, you know, um, tenants, I don't think tenants have been filled, but I think um, that is something we can go look at here in a couple of years to make sure that the way that it's currently written is working. And if not, then we can make modifications. Okay. And I would just, great, do you want to? 
Well, I, so when I was elected and inaugurated, the Central Area Plan was slightly underway, but certainly the lion's share of, of the engagement was on my watch. And, and I, this is the planning board. Your specialty is uh, con, you know consistently with adoptive plans, but my interpretation is this is in line with the Central Area Plan, complemented as opposed to uh, we're making something that's in line with the plan as opposed to um, wanting to modify the plan because we want to shove this in, in, in my opinion. Obviously, you can have your own opinion. Uh, yeah, I, I agree 100%. I would just say um, that both the East Central and East Area Plan took three and a half years, thousands of comments from community, and this is what it says to do. Um, people do not want to see drive-throughs along Colfax anymore. Residents, people do not want to see car-centric uses along Colfax anymore. They want to see um, Colfax be created into a space where we have active, um, you know, active uses where we have restaurants with front, um, you know, with front patios where people are sitting and hanging out and creating community together. Um, right now, the way Colfax developed over the last 50 years, it just, it doesn't do that. It's, it's very car centric. Um, and given the several hundred million dollars of investment put in by the city uh, voters and federal state and federal government um, into the BRT, you know, we want to make sure that as we are developing our develop our, our standards, our building standards are in line with that vision that the community told us um, they wanted to see and, you know, that we're investing extraordinary amounts of money in delivering. And I, I'm sorry, yeah. as you mentioned, very car-centric, that is Colfax by design, yeah. right? This was the time, the place where people would get in their car and cruise the strip because that was the American dream on Friday night. And that's what you do. And um, so that was great for the 1950s, 1960s. Um, we're different as a as a community, uh, as a city. We want that to be uh, something else now. And so mm -hmm. let's be intentional now to make it what we want it to be. Thank you. I have Mary up next. Yeah. Thank you, uh, all of you guys, so much for your work into this. I uh, really appreciate trying to reimagine what Colfax is and to bring it up to date. Um, I have first kind of a technical question for Libby. Can you talk more, just because I think it gets a little fuzzy, when we talk about setbacks and build twos, how those things interface together? If we have a zero to 10 foot build two and a two foot setback, what does that mean if I'm trying to redevelop? Yeah. Um, so the setback is a minimum setback. Um, and then this build two is, I can't remember off the top of my head what it is. Um, is it five to 10 feet? I'm looking at Matthew. He's able to look it up. Um, but that's essentially, uh, and what the, there's a percentage that goes with that build too. So if it's- Two, two feet, two to 10. Okay. Um, so if it's 50%, that means 50% of the building needs to be between two and 10 feet from the property line. I just wanted to clarify it because it, it called it out as zero to 10 feet. So I was like, okay. oh, oh that's right. It's two. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. that. Um, and then I'm just curious, and I don't know if any of you know, one of the commenters mentioned a DOTI requirement of seven feet. Can you talk more about that and like how that would play in? Yeah. So my understanding that that, so right now, um, you know, DOTI is requiring more right of way along Colfax. Um, so you know, when new properties come in, they are, I don't want to say taking, but um, you are uh, requesting, 
I guess it's about seven feet of right of way. And then the two foot setback would, so that would adjust the property line. And then the two feet would be from the new property line. Okay. And I will just add to that, that um, the reason for that is like, if you've ever walked along Santa Fe, right? And you've taken your kneecaps out on like an electric box that's hanging into mm -hmm. the sidewalk, that is because these kinds of things did these kinds of restrictions didn't exist on Santa Fe until a couple of months ago. Um, and so that two feet is specifically meant for things like those electrical boxes so that they're not hanging into the sidewalk. So it's, it's sort of a different thing, right? Because if it was a zero foot setback, um, those, those items would still be hanging out into the sidewalk. Um, whereas with a two foot setback, you're not gonna kneecap yourself walking on the street. Yeah. Um, and so that's that purpose of that two foot set, additional two foot setback because as we have seen, developers have literally built into the right of way um, with items that cannot be moved like electrical boxes um, that deter people from walking and rolling. And if the point of this is to um, really get people to be you know, set pedestrian friendly and, and safe and uh, community oriented and small business support and all of those things, then we can't successfully do that if people are tripping over electrical boxes walking down the street. And I, I want to add to, ha ha, we were never elected to be quiet, I think. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, not that we're modifying existing uh, buildings, but we should, uh, we should, or built environments, but we should learn from those. Um, and like the Ogden, as an example, um, when they have concerts, they shut down the whole sidewalk uh, because they want a smoking area, um, which is, they don't have a permit. They don't do it legally, but they do it. And, um, and also during the day uh, when um, uh, events, performers are loading and unloading, they load all their stuff onto the sidewalk. And uh, so again, sidewalks shut down. And, uh, you know, the idea is to, create a broad and inviting pedestrian experience. And when there are barricades that literally are not permitted and, um, you know, but it's a beloved institution, we get national acts that come to the Ogden. So I'm not trying to uh, say we need to shut down the Ogden, um, but, uh, but we should learn from, uh, you know, from, from things that we've uh, discovered on, on Colfax. And we should, if we want a broad and inviting pedestrian experience, we wanna make sure that we can learn from the Ogden and, and others. Yeah, um, I appreciate both of those those things. And then just to follow up on some of the questions that came up from the public commenters, um, I think it's a really interesting point that this is the first proposal for DO8 that runs east-west as opposed to north-south and how the blocks are oriented and the lot depth that's available is really my, my major concern with this. So I'm just curious if you guys explored creating a new design overlay that was more responsive to the lot depths as opposed to applying the DO8 overlay. So yes, we did explore um, you know, different, doing a text amendment. Um, however, we ultimately settled on, so the reason, um, I guess I would say there are some portions of along um, 8th near Santa Fe, so that's east-west that have the DO8 and then same within district one, there are a few of those um, east-west areas already. They're not nearly as long as Colfax's. Um, but so in the plans, it specifically talks about what lots, like the different challenge levels of lots. So like 75 feet is still developable, but challenging. Um, and so that's the reason why this is mapped 100, at least 100 feet deep 
from Colfax um, to allow for the, the more, I guess, more potential development to occur um, and not just, so usually it's a couple properties deep and not necessarily just one property along Colfax. Um, and I guess I would already also say like, it is already challenging to develop along Colfax. And I don't know that this necessarily, from when I talked to the project coordinator, you know, her argument is this doesn't make it that much more difficult because it is already challenging. Um, and plus there's a lot of, um, you know, there are some administrative adjustments that you can get or a variance, um, as well as with the adaptive reuse program. Um, there's a lot of adjustments you can get under that program now that will allow for buildings um, to be adaptively reused along the corridor. Okay. And um, I would just say that is, that's why we exempted properties that are less than 100 feet deep. And the DOA um, specifically exempts properties that are less than 37 and a half feet wide. So um, the, the width challenge along Colfax was already taken care of by the DOA overlay. The length challenge, um, we exempt, just chose to exempt properties that are smaller than 100 feet in okay. depth. Um, could you, uh, so I, my understanding before was that if I wanted to redevelop a property that was less than 100 feet, I would have to assemble sort of that parcel with the extension. But you're saying if I have a property that's less than 100 feet deep, the DOA just doesn't apply, even if it's within one of those transit nodes? Okay. So I actually do think, so it is mapped um, multiple properties would total 100 feet. But if I owned one parcel that was only 70 feet deep, then I wouldn't have to... No, it would, the DOA would apply if the DOA is mapped there. No, that, but it's not mapped there because we exempted it. So any place where there is uh, there is the possibility that the DOA overlay would have applied and it's less than 100 feet, it is not mapped there. So we considered if, to kind of get into the details of the back and forth on uh, where that line was drawn from the edge. Um, we considered both the lot depth as well as the depth of the Main Street zoning. Mm -hmm. uh, recognizing that there are a lot of challenges for redeveloping those shallow properties as they are. Um, there's a recognition that oftentimes there will be a need for lot consolidation in order to make a development project pencil out. And so the line is drawn uh, where uh, the Main Street Zone District is uh, at least 100 feet deep. So if the Main Street Zone District itself is 85 feet deep, then the properties that fall between that line and uh, the Colfax frontage would not be included. If the zone district isn't that deep, but if the property isn't that deep, it, it still may be applied to it. Correct. That's, I think, this one. Awesome. Yeah, okay. Now I understand your question. I was confused. Yes, that's right. Okay. Um, and then I have a few more questions, but I'm going to pause and then. Okay. Kosha? Yeah, thank you. Um, I have a few questions. Uh, yeah, thank you for all the work and the presentation. Um, I would like to ask about, um, well, let me start with a general question. So um, the, this DOA was developed for tennis and context, which is very different than what we're looking at here. 
uh, how did you determine that the same overlay is appropriate on the Colpex corridor that is appropriate on kind of a local corridor? Yeah, so I would actually argue that you know the reason it's called active centers and design overlay is because it was intended to be more general and not just for Tennyson. It was first mapped along Tennyson. Um, otherwise, they might have called it the Tennyson overlay because um, that's what we have areas like that in the like the Rhino overlay is very you know it has Rhino in the name. Um, so I would argue that because of the generalness of the name, the purpose was to be mapped in other locations. Um, and, you know, I think looking at the regulations, I think we found that that is also what is was being called for in the neighborhood plans and that we had a design overlay that would meet a lot of the guidance in the plans for, um, you know, active, an active corridor, um, as well as more pedestrian friendliness by having that two foot setback. Um, and so that was the reason that we went forward with the existing overlay rather than creating a BO9, for example. That's oh, yeah, that's right. There's already one. We D11, D12. Okay. D12, I think it's So no more technical questions. So I see a 7-foot residential setback. Can you explain that to me, especially how it relates to the um, land right-of-way dedication that right-of-way right dedication that Doty likes to uh, ask for? So say Doty asks for seven feet and then we have a seven foot residential setback does that mean that the building is pushed back 14 feet from where it's now could be built to yes so um you know with with a, de a land dedication that would move the property line and then the residential portion would need to be seven feet from that new property line um, and the reason for that is to accommodate porch space, because we know that when residences are right up against the property line, they just have closed blinds. Um, and so that's to you know, facilitate like a more um, engaged space. So do you think porches are appropriate on Colfax? Um, you know, a, yeah, I, you know, I guess, so that's where, you know, they could do all commercial and do a two foot setback that has outdoor dining. You know, that's that's up to the architects and the designers to determine. And so it's, they don't, you know, this is most of it should be commercial. Um, and that residential could be an apartment, like maybe it's not a porch or maybe it's the a first story of a porch for an apartment building. Because there are, you know, apartments that are along Colfax um, or along some of our busy streets. And so this way, maybe instead that apartment will open their curtains. And I will just also add that if you look at the East Area Plan, specifically in some of the drawings, there are porches in front. And frankly, I hope we do have more residential activation. And we are trying to create the foresight that maybe maybe someone won't have a porch today or maybe even not 10 years from now. But, but the idea is to have a vision for, you know, decades into the future. And I hope that that Colfax is remains its kind of weird self, but um, but but more people live on it and activate it 24-7. All right, the last question is about commercial uses. Um, so yes, we wish for commercial uses, but has there actually been a market study to demonstrate that they, commercial uses are actually gonna be valuable um, in that area? There's enough population density and demand for services. Yeah, so they did do a market study with both the East Central and East Area plans. Um, and, you know, the outcome of that was that, um, while, you know, obviously there's lots of commercial along Colfax today, and so it, we know it can support commercial, um, but that the entire corridor is probably not 
you know, the best fit for commercial, um, which is why we mapped it where we did just near the BRT, which is where we anticipate the most activity to occur, you know, near stations. Um, and so that is the reason that um, it's just in those two block areas and not along the entire stretch because, um, you know, there are portions where there's just maybe not quite the density to support along the whole like, five mile stretch there. Okay. Do you have any other questions this side? Um, I'll go ahead and pop in with one before we go back to Mary. I just, not to beat a dead horse, but we talked about one of the, one of the themes of some of the questions has been about how this might impose additional constraints on development. And I wonder if you could really speak to holistically what analysis you guys did to help assure yourselves that we weren't creating incredible barriers or, or constraints on development. Yeah. So I wonder if you can speak about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah, so um, they did a lot of that analysis with the East and East Central area plans. Um, I know that the consultant that was hired um, specifically did that analysis and we actually met with her um, during our engagement process. And um, yeah, so she was the one that said, you know, that 70 feet is kind of, you know, you can still make it work with the two foot setback and having to do parking. So that would be, you know, a new development um, with the parking that is required. Okay. And I guess as we talk a little bit also about the parcel depth question, because I I think to summarize what I've what I've heard so far on the parcel depth question is that you've mapped it out to a depth of at least a hundred feet, but that we may it sounds like we do have some parcels which are not that deep. Do we know what the minimum depth of some of those parcels is? I mean, how how shallow are some of those assessors parcels? Yeah, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I know that there are some that are like maybe just below 70 feet. Do you know? I believe that. I believe so. It's been some time, but uh, again, oh. yeah. Well, and when we had that conversation, we had uh, you guys had done the research to CPD had done the research to um, like assess all of the potential parcels along the corridor and see what where should that break point lie, right? And, um, you know, and originally we thought we were going to do this at 70 feet. Um, and then after that assessment had the conversation, then it would make more sense at the 100 feet. So that's why we're at 100 feet now. But um, it was something that we had many discussions about. Okay. And I guess, to, you know, kind of following that up, one of my concerns is, and, and I'll phrase the question here in a minute, is that it's well and good to say that they could make an assemblage to make development feasible, but I'm not sure that that's a legitimate thing to put upon a de developer. I mean, you know, you may have a property owner who doesn't want to sell, you know, what do you do? And, and I guess I put this question maybe to, to Adam um, for city attorney's office, but is there any risk that there could be considered a, a, a taking through this rezoning if a parcel is considered undevelopable and can't, you know, can't develop under the zoning that's been put up on it? It would depend, typical lawyer answer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's the best I can do. 
I would just add that um, when the notice to proceed is granted for the BRT from Dottie, um, the parking requirement for residential parking, right? Our, our zoning code separates out commercial parking and residential parking um, is gone. There is zero residential parking requirement along Colfax within a quarter mile of um, all of the planned BRT stops under our zoning code today. So that provides significant flexibility that didn't exist before for developers. Um, and so, you know, to me, um, that argument especially we have done everything we can to um, address that argument. There is no parking requirement. We have the adaptive reuse program going on in East Colfax as a pilot program where we're really looking at the specifics of those kinds of things and trying to incentivize adaptive reuse, which um, could be potentially one a better option for one of those smaller properties. Um, there's renovation like the La Vista Motel um, that one of our speakers mentioned um, on Colfax and Hudson that is it's not being changed at all. It's just being renovated and turned into apartments. So um, there are, they, I think that this gives enough flexibility to developers um, with all of those different separate options that exist within our zoning code um, that this is just one piece of a lot of different moving parts. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to follow up on a question um, Ms. Rothman had, especially because this came up in our last planning board meeting as well. Um, Libby, can you speak to a little bit uh, of the strategies that we have as a city that um, we can start moving away from the drive-through in areas where, yeah, it's along a commercial corridor, but um, it's not really where the community wants to go with development. Yeah, so um, mostly that is in um, by not allowing the drive-through building forms um, is the main way that we discourage fast food or drive-through uses, I would say. Um, I wanna caveat that with, you know, our restaurants are all, are all sent under one umbrella. So whether it's fast food, fast casual, fine dining, they're all eating and drinking establishments, um, which are uses by right in these zone districts. Um, but by not permitting the form in certain districts does make it more challenging for some of you know these large corporations that are drive-throughs, because a lot of times they probably have a set building that they just plop everywhere around the country. Um, so it can make it more challenging to um, place a Taco Bell or what have you um, in these districts. Is that... Is that the building form of a drive-through entirely, or is that having sort of like access points along certain? Because I know, like the example everyone gives is the Chick-fil-A that's um, close to Colfax in Colorado. So that fits into the form of restaurant mm -hmm. for. So do we have anything beyond that to preclude that use? Um, so I can't speak to curb cuts and how we allow those. Um, that would be a question for Dottie. Um, I know that we are trying to so like on federal, for example, um, you know, we're trying to do less curb cuts. I know that Colfax is a state highway, and correct? Yeah, we have the A Which, moniker, right? In every zone district, uh, or oh, every okay. context, mm -hmm. we have an A moniker, like SMX 3A in the suburban context, yeah, right? Doesn't allow. And that A moniker, that's what it does. It does not allow the drive throughs. Yeah. Um, it but, is a state highway. But yeah, so I know that like, so that would be through CDOT having to get those curb cut yeah. permits, correct? Um, and so, yeah, I, I can't quite speak to how they prohibit that. Um, but I know that like on federal, for example, which is also a state highway, they're putting in more, more medians, which does prevent some of those curb cuts. 
preventing you from turning wherever you want to. I'll add to that also that by limiting building forms to shop front and townhouse, uh, the build to requirements for those building forms will uh, result in much more of the frontage uh, having a presence of a building rather than uh, an absence. But if I painted a big mural on a wall and then put my drive through behind that? You well, could do that. <laughs> you could totally do that. And why not, right? We're trying to provide us the flexibility um, to develop the corridor while still meeting people's needs. So why not, right? But um, that is off the side street of Colfax as opposed to what our goal is, which is to look at that Colfax corridor vision um, and see that along these nodes, there is this activation and additional space and open to the sky and all of those things that um, makes it inviting and welcoming for people to be there, which then supports the small businesses um, and sort of and community safety and all the things. Um, and then my last question is just again from the public comment. Um, did you guys explore having the setback only on that 14 foot high ground floor and then allowing? Oh, so like doing like a, yeah, yeah cantilever over. over. Um, so that would have been a text amendment. And I think, you know, from our urban designers, I've heard that that would block sunlight to get, we want that to be outdoor dining areas. That's the purpose of that setback is more pedestrian space, space for more outdoor dining. And by cantilevering, cantilevering over, that would block sunlight to those dining areas, which maybe wouldn't create quite as nice of an experience. Um, so I don't know if that's something that would potentially change. Um, you know, we actually, again, I used to have Cherry Creek. She now has Cherry Creek. But in Cherry Creek, we had that conversation as well about, um, you know, should there should it be open to the sky? And um, and there there was definitely the thought that um, people do talk about shadows and um, and whether uh, people will have access to the sun. And so. Uh, Cherry Creek, the idea was that it would be open to the sky. Same with the Golden Triangle text amendment conversation, uh, where there were setbacks and stepbacks. And the idea was to um, the and to enhance the pedestrian experience, you should have a greater view of uh, of nature as opposed to having, you know, mankind continue to oppress the the pedestrian experience. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to just put out there, it may depend on the width of your right-of-way, but we'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I. All right, I have a question. First, I want to thank both of the council people that are here for these great efforts, um, and also the other council people aren't, who aren't here, who are involved. Um, <clears throat> one of the things, you know, we talk about a lot in this group is implementation of our planning documents. And I view this application as an implementation of our documents. So I wanted to say thank you uh, and hope that, that it's a diligence that we create that seems unusual now, but that becomes the norm, right? As we progress, it becomes a norm for our new city council people. Um, that you'll mentor along the way that when our our planning entities create documents, we then follow up and there's multiple different ways that we need to implement zoning is just one part of it, but thank you. Um, and then I just wanted to ask a question about the over the overlay survey data. Now this doesn't have to do with criteria or or approving it. It's just a curiosity. Um, in this survey on the overlay district, there is a question about, ADUs and hail. And I was wondering if you could give me the context of how 
ADUs and Hale came into the DOE. I don't know where Logan currently is, um, but it, we may have combined. So stay tuned, guys, because I'm coming at you for a Hale ADU rezoning soon. Um, but it may we may have just accidentally put smushed the two together because we were doing them at the same time. Um, one for the application that we're about to submit and one for the for this planning board. So okay, so you uh, are submitting an ADU. I am. On, okay. Yes. And that we did the be... same sort of community outreach there that we did here. Oh, and we have the same sort of data. Yeah. That's put together. Yeah. Thank Sorry. you. It's not in this one. Yeah. It's just in the, ele the electronic version. It may I'm have just gotten all smushed together in the electronic but we haven't filed that application yet it's coming well thank you yeah thank you again like our goals have been to implement the east area and east central area plans right and that, that's great that is also one of the recommendations adu so trying to also build that density um for the very same reasons we're talking about here today thank you for being a great example of what we hope to have at the outcome of our planning documents any further questions from the uh, from the board? Uh, seeing none, I will go ahead and close the public hearing and open it up for board deliberations. Thank you, Fred. Um, I so honestly, I, I'm torn on this application. I absolutely love the street activation. Um, I think it's really important. I appreciate the implementation of the plan. Um, I think you know, having an active street is so critical and I love the vision to transform pullbacks. Where I have a little bit of heartburn and I think, you know, it's the one-two punch of the, the requirement from Dottie and this in terms of the, the setback is that we'll find ourselves in a place where it's too hard to redevelop. And then our properties that are closest to our BRT transit centers won't get redeveloped because the sites become undevelopable. It's too hard to assemble properties. Um, and so I have I have a little bit of heartburn around that. Um, and I'm really curious to hear how the rest of you are thinking about this. Rosha. Thank you. Uh, I definitely agree. I think it's just, this application is really well intended and I agree with the intentions, but I think the execution implementation in this context is this is not the right tool. I think the first thing I would like to say that it's a common misconception that a wider street makes for a more pedestrian friendly environment. Actually, the opposite is true. Mm. The tighter the street, uh, the more friction between the vehicles and environment, the slower cars go and therefore create more uh, pedestrian friendly environments. And this is one of the elements of uh, Blueprint Denver on page 21. Urban design is one of the themes in the plan. So I feel that, uh, I, I do feel the conflict. Um, I also, um, um, let's see. Uh, I also, so with that urban design theme in the Blueprint, I think how it translates to our zoning code is is built to requirements and block sensitive setbacks. This is kind of to create the consistent facade of the street, consistent edges and consistent pedestrian experience. And once we start pulling buildings back, we create these miss missing teeth. Yeah. And actually the pedestrian experience starts to suffer. 
um, specially implemented on main sections of the street is even more problematic. Although I think pushing buildings back away from this belt tool uh, datum line is in general problematic. And especially here seeing um, the DOTI requirements compounded with the seven foot residential setback, that is 28, that is 14 feet on either side, 28 feet total that were widened in Colfax, which I, I think it, it's really it's, it's really problematic. I also see a conflict with the residential development and how it really puts residential development at the disadvantage. Um, so first of all, there's a requirement for commercial uses on ground floor. If it's resident, the residential has to be pushed back even farther than the two feet required for commercial. And that compounded with the availability of funding for affordable housing and how hard it is to make affordable housing projects work with a commercial component, it really feels like those residential developments are gonna be discouraged through this tool. So therefore we're talking about equity. We're actually limiting access to housing on this corridor near transit by implementing the role that kind of puts residential development at a disadvantage. So I, I have a lot of very serious concerns about unintended consequences of that for life. But I would love to hear whatever somebody said. Um, yeah, I appreciate your, your expert opinions. I was picturing it myself and the word that came to mind was snaggletooth um, as some um, redevelopment pulls back and others are still forward and what that might do shadow-wise and everything else, the kinds of things we want to avoid in, in a sort of sleek, consistent urban design. I, I couldn't quite picture it. And when you said that, I was like, that that's kind of what I was uh, envisioning. Um, wondering about the mandates for retail and the things that I'm observing about certain retail communities and the decline. Um, it, it's not retail, it's commercial, I realized. Um, but recognizing some of the issues that downtown is having in um, building, you know, capacity and, and vacancies with commercial and office space, uh, retail is declining. And so I, it, when I was asking about um, testing the theories or best practices or, you know, projections or what have you, um, I'm, I'm not sure who knows yet what, what's going to happen with commercial properties yet. So that worries me a little bit. And I do worry that because there is such a, um, a, a problem with displacement, a, a, with potential problem with displacement with the forthcoming BRT, that the solutions are uh, focused on uh, affordability, accessibility, um, where do the unhoused people go? and um, places to absorb that. I know that's a whole nother issue, but I'm, I'm a little, I, I like that there's something that steps into the gap to try to look at, at the long-term and, and to plan for a time we don't know what is gonna exist. So I love that and I applaud all the work that's gone into it, but I'm still listening as well because I, I, I not sure about the answer. I know we've looked at other things, but Colfax is its own um, unique corridor. And will this work there? I'm not totally sure. Yes, Heidi. 
Coach, I have a question for you. I heard you say that um, the DOA wasn't the right tool, right? That, that you're supportive of a plan implementation, obviously, but not the right tool. What would the right tool have been to you, a text amendment? Yeah, I don't know that tool exists, but I think Colfax is unique enough with the BRT to deserve a little more attention than just implementing something that was originally started elsewhere. I think the conditions are very different here. And, um, and again, talking about the pedestrian experience, um, one document we have, it's not an adopted plan, but it's a complete street design guidelines that are a document that city is using. One of the principle, um, guiding principles of that plan is that we design our streets from outside in. So the right of way is set. And then if we say we want a wider sidewalk, we want a bus lane, we go inwards. Mm -hmm. So I would like those principles implemented on this street like callbacks and really kind of embrace that um, ideas that we put on paper, but we don't really translate into actual implementation. Um, so I think this is what we're, we're there's a, it's it's problem that we're expanding the right of way. We're pushing buildings away. I do agree with making the Colfax more pedestrian friendly, but not for the tools that are proposed in this overlay district. So you're you're struggling with the application, Gosha. Do you um, do you do you feel like it meets criteria? Let me get back with you. We're not voting yet. Okay. I'll Thank I'll you. jump in, not seeing any other hands raised yet, but I'll I'll jump in quickly. I think one of the things that I think is interesting about this is it's not dissimilar in some respects to some of the conflicts we experienced around the rezoning on federal, in that we're dealing with a fairly coarse tool to solve what in some respects is 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 a design question you know we've got zoning um and we've got design and they're they're not the same thing and so i i you know it's kind of this frustration that we can't can't look at the actual design here uh i think i i don't think that this is perfect i i, I think that there are there remain questions in my mind that uh, I share some of the hesitations I've heard articulated. Um, Colfax is rather different. And I guess my hope is, is that this is a placeholder to seek better outcomes whilst the BRT and what I hope will be a pretty profound think rethinking or design project around Colfax related to that happens. Um, because I think, you know, from my perspective, what I'd like to see is, is a real rethinking of, of Colfax and how it looks now. But, and I think BRT probably is that, but that's not what's here today. And we don't have that opportunity to look at that. So I, I think I, I am inclined to support this. I do think it meets the criteria, perhaps not perfectly, and perhaps there are other answers that we are grasping for, but are not put before us today and not put before us to vote on. Um, with regards to the concern about disadvantaging residential development, I 
do think that the limitation of the overlay to a two block radius around the stations is fairly thoughtful and intentional to ensure that there is plenty of space for residential development while also trying to ensure that what is desired around those station areas is, is incentivized. Uh, and so I think that that two block radius makes me a lot more comfortable about that question for what it's worth. Um, and I also just wanna say, uh, you know, acknowledging some of the public comment we've heard, I, I don't think that there's anybody on this board who does not desire to see less auto-centric development, particularly on corridors such as Colfax. Um, but I also really understand as a developer and property owner that the, there are real challenges often in getting the development and the tenants and the partners that you want. And so I, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hard for us to, I mean, I suppose there could be a path, but I'm not sure it would be terribly successful to say restaurants are allowed along Colfax, but they can't be fast food. They, you know, I, I think that's a, a dangerous path to go down. And, and one hopes that as we see development happening there, that it leads where we want it to and that and it does. But um, in some cases, the choice before a property owner becomes development that is not anybody's first choice or vacant properties which become blight, which become uh, a problem for the neighborhood. So I, I just want to acknowledge that as well. Anyway, that's that's my initial pass of this. Open the floor up. Yeah, Heidi. and Mary, I so appreciate your comments. They are great, valid points, and um, really cause to make me think. I think I probably come down where Fred is coming down. I don't find I can make a plan-based argument um, to vote against the application. My hope would be um, what Fred has said, and I would push staff really hard to look at the actual outcomes of this and do text amendments as necessary. There might need to be another, uh, enough of a tweak to the, to the, to the eight of design overlay that maybe a, something else evolves out of it. Um, and that we really think hard uh, staff about a, a text amendment, specifically when we hear what Goja said about the um, streetscape Completes was it complete streets, Scotia? Complete streets guide. Yeah, guidelines. the complete street guidelines, right? That we are pushing the street out even further and further and further. And I would challenge back a little bit on on if we are hearing from design professionals like Andy that a two foot um, cantilever is something we should consider. Consider it. I mean, two feet of yes, that's two feet of less sunlight. However. For those of us in the population who burn very, very rapidly in our Colorado sun, I can't sit at an outdoor restaurant in the sun. I have got to seek those places of shade and shadow. And so there's some compromise there. This is a unique environment that's going to need some unique solutions um, that are going to cause us to need to look at some text amendments. And that's my hope of where this will come. And we know as a city, 
when we have something that's not being utilized the way we want. Um, for instance, look at all of the work we did on ADUs, on changing the text there, because we knew it wasn't working. It wasn't working the way we needed it to. So we should know in short order. And I asked the city staff to be really responsive to that. Uh, any other deliberation anyone would like to bring forward? And if not, would anyone care to make a motion? I'll make the motion, but I don't have my motions in front of me. Does anybody have their motions here, in front of them? They're, they're not on. Oh, sorry. They're, they're online. They're here. Oh. They didn't get really passed around. Oh. That's, that's it. Okay. I move to recommend the city council approve application number 2022-I-00132 rezoning multiple properties on East Colfax between Grant and Yosemite Street for various zone, zone districts to include the DO-8 finding the applicable review criteria, criteria have been met. We have a second? I'll second. Thank you. So moved by Heidi, seconded by Jordan. Any discussion on the motion? Seeing no discussion, we'll take a roll call vote. Claude? Aye. Jordan? Aye. Heidi? Aye. Bill? Based on the criteria, aye. Gosha? No. Mary? No. And I vote aye as well. So that motion is carried with five to two. Uh, thank you all. Uh, We've been at this now for two hours. We have one more item on the agenda, which is uh, an info item. And I assume there will be a fair bit of discussion about would members of the board like to take a brief break before we continue on? Yes. So let's take 10 minutes and reconvene at 5 12. <clears throat> Cheyenne and Arapaho musicians will visit Lamont and share a performance for Indigenous Peoples Day 2023. There will be a drum performance of Chief White Antelope's song, a traditional Cheyenne Kit Fox Society song that he sang as militia descended on the Cheyenne and Arapaho encampment at Sand Creek. The singers will also discuss the historical context and other important Cheyenne music traditions. Everyone is welcome for this free event. The largest coin show in the Rocky Mountains is here. The Denver Coin Expo is a three-day event with over 130 dealer tables with rare coins, paper notes, medals, antique jewelry, apparels, dolls, bullion, and other collectibles. Make sure to attend because they are giving away a free 2023 American Gold Eagle coin. Create Playdate is an early childhood program at the Denver Art Museum for families with children ages 3 through 5, though siblings are always welcome too. Create Playdate offers a range of experiences within the museum, 
including story time, art making, and even an in-gallery activity. Join in the creativity and the fun. The ultimate tribute band to one of rock and roll's remarkable groups will be at the Paramount Theater on October 14th. Enjoy the vibes of Fleetwood Mac's greatest songs, or you can go your own way. Tickets are on sale now. Second Saturdays at CSU Spur are held from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. and are free and open to the public for lots of family-friendly programming, including cooking activities in the CSU Spur kitchen, opportunities to watch veterinarians perform surgery on dogs and cats, seahorses assisting with human therapies, engage with scientists at work, and play in a kid's kitchen and kid's vet clinic, allowing kids to become a veterinarian for the day and fix up stuffed animals. The NBA champs are back home for the preseason game against the Chicago Bulls. Experience mile-high basketball and head down to Ball Arena on October 15th. Hurry and get your tickets now. That's a quick look at what's happening in Denver this week. And stay updated on all things Denver by checking out our socials. Do you live in Denver? We know you want to stay updated on all the things that make our city great. Sign up for the Denver Local, a newsletter with all the info you need from your local government in one place. Signing up is easy at denvergov.org slash denverlocal. You can also follow Elevating Denver for exclusive video content on our YouTube channel and broadcast on Denver Channel 8, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Connect to your city. Connect with community. With the Denver Local and Elevating Denver. Street sweeping season is starting in Denver. It runs April through November. So what we encourage people to do is go out and look at the red and white street sweeping signs on their block and then move their car on their street sweeping day. We ask people to move their cars so that we can sweep effectively. We want to get all the way to the curb line where dirt and debris tends to accumulate. Street sweeping helps us keep our environment clean, our neighborhoods clean. It removes dirt and debris off the streets, keeps it out of our air and water. Taking that debris off the street also prevents our stormwater inlets from getting clogged when it rains. So we want to clean that curb line the best we can. So we're out here reminding people to please move your cars for your street sweeping day. You can look at the red and white signs that are on your block to learn what day is your street sweeping day. So we encourage people to do that to avoid a street sweeping citation. Do you need to report a pothole in your area? Look no further than our new online services hub at denvergov.org. Just click on report an issue and select pothole. Fill out the questions and tell us a little more about the problem. Snap and upload a pic to help our crews find the pothole so they can fix it. Then make sure to tell us where the pothole is located. Add your information if you'd like, and then review and submit. That's it. Our crews will be on the way to fix the issue so you can have a smooth ride home. And that's just one of many issues you can raise a flag about at denvergov.org. Irish musician, singer, and songwriter Hosier is coming to Red Rocks on October 17th. Tickets are selling fast, so be sure to grab yours today. An uplifting comeback story like no other. 
Tina, the Tina Turner musical, is the inspiring journey of a woman who broke barriers and became the queen of rock and roll. Her voice was undeniable. Her fire was unstoppable. The show will be in town till the 29th. You don't want to miss it. Spend an enchanting night experiencing the magic of the museum with your whole family. Wear your costumes while participating in Halloween hands-on science, crafts, and more. Snuggle up for story time and enjoy a show in the Gates Planetarium. After a night of fun, sleep among the animals in the world-famous diorama halls. A ticket includes a pizza and salad dinner, evening stack, and hot breakfast the next morning. It'll be a ghostly good time for little monsters and mummies. One of the most exciting and unique Halloween events is back. Have you ever wondered what a haunted bar crawl would be like? Look no further because this is perfect for those who love to drink and enjoy a spooky atmosphere. Make sure you buy your ticket in advance so you can select a fabulous costume and crawl in style. The Broadway Halloween Parade is back. The family-friendly event held annually in the eclectic and funky heart of Broadway features spooky floats, bands, marchers, and more. The parade is Saturday, October 21st from 6 to 8 p.m. and will delight Halloween fans down Broadway from 5th Avenue to Alameda. Get there early to find the best viewing spot along the route. Visit the event website to get all the information, including how to volunteer and best public transit routes to get to the event. The Green Bay Packers will be in town to play the Denver Broncos. This matchup will be one to watch as it's been 25 years since the Broncos defeated the Packers in Super Bowl 32. Get your tickets today. That's a quick look at what's happening in Denver this week. And stay updated on all things Denver by checking out our socials.
Planning Board. Welcome back. Recording in Welcome progress. Welcome back to the Planning Board. Uh, our next item is an information item, and this is a Neighborhood Planning Initiative Program Evaluation Update uh, presented by Scott Robinson. And I, I just want to set the stage a little bit on what I think we expect to, to happen today. And that is that I believe staff is going to be presenting a preferred alternative to us. And this is not the final presentation, uh, but today will be an opportunity for further conversation and feedback based on what's being presented to us. Uh, the planning board, had, or any members of the public who are watching or listening, has had some pretty significant conversations with staff already about MPI. And, and this really, I think, starts with the discussions that we've had as a group as we have reviewed NPI plans that have uh, come forward, particularly recently the West and Near Southeast. And that this also I want to mention and make clear that this culminated with a really in-depth discussion at a work session we had with staff at the end of August, I believe it was. Time, time moves in strange ways. <laughs> So I want to turn it over to Scott to uh, to present, and then we will have ample time for questions and discussions with the board. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Uh, Scott Robinson with Community Planning and Development. Uh, thanks for the introduction. You covered uh, a lot of stuff I was going to say. Anyway, so appreciate that. Um, so yes, uh, as Fred said, this is an update on the NPI program evaluation that we've been working on the last few months. Uh, and what we're going to present to you is is the direction we think we're going to be going, uh, but it is not uh, finalized yet. So we want to get your input and feedback on uh, what we're going to share here. Uh, so give just a, a quick background uh, to remind you all what we're doing. Uh, give an overview of, of what we've learned from uh, the process so far, then go into that uh, preliminary program proposal, uh, the direction we think we're going a few discussion items we want to tee up uh, to hear back from you on and then uh, give you the next steps of, of what's coming next in this process. So uh, as a reminder, we're doing this evaluation uh, now as we approach the end of phase two of NPI uh, with our sixth plan near Northwest uh, expected to be adopted here in the next couple months. Uh, we wanted to pause the program and evaluate and make sure that we have the right goals uh, for the program and that we're accomplishing those goals and look at ways that we can improve the plans and the plan process in terms of consistency, efficiency, and implementation, and also making sure that we are achieving our equity goals in terms of the planning process and the plan outcomes. So we've been uh, doing uh, an evaluation now, as I said, for a few months, uh, looking at data, talking to peer cities, uh, uh, getting a deeper understanding of, of how the program has worked and also having conversations uh, with various stakeholders, including uh, planning board, council members, um, community members who have served on steering committees, uh, other agencies and departments within the city, uh, consultants who have worked on these plans. And so in all of that, we've basically been asking, uh, what do we want these plans to accomplish? What, what do we, would we like to get out of our NPI plans? Uh, and how can we improve the process of creating those plans and how can we improve the actual plan documents, what the outcome of that process is? Uh, so that's really what we've been trying to understand uh, throughout this. So as a summary, uh, what we learned from all those conversations we've been having uh, in terms of goals, what people want the program and the plans to accomplish, 
is creating a, a sense of community consensus uh, that everyone in the community understands the future of their neighborhood and agrees on that's the that being the direction uh, the neighborhood should be going. Uh, addressing community concerns, uh, understanding what the community uh, wants or has issues with in their neighborhood and, and addressing those, uh, providing useful guidance for neighborhoods, for uh, residents of those neighborhoods, again, understanding uh, the direction their neighborhood is going and the steps that it will take to get there and how they can contribute to that. Uh, setting the stage for implementation, making sure that uh, the plan can be easily moved forward with uh, after adoption and we can actually achieve the, the outcomes that we're calling for and, and otherwise supporting city decision-making. So uh, when we make budget decisions, when we make capital improvement decisions, uh, when we make work program decisions, do we have the, the resources we need in these plans to help guide those decisions? Uh, in terms of improving the process, uh, heard from pretty much everyone that we would like the process to go faster. Uh, plans have been taking on average between two and a half and three years, some up to three and a half or more. Uh, and we've been hearing consistently that that's too long for these planning processes. Uh, it's hard for folks to stay engaged for that amount of time. Uh, uh, people get burned out, the steering committee gets burned out. And uh, the longer it takes us to complete these plans, uh, the slower we are getting to the other areas of the city that also need plans. Uh, a desire to make it easier to participate in the plans, and that's both in the types of engagement uh, we're doing uh, and how available that is, um, you know, when we're doing it, uh, what resources we're using to make that happen, and also the types of questions we're asking, making sure that we're, we're asking questions that people can understand and provide uh, useful feedback on. Uh, strengthening equity in uh, our engagement overall and in our, in our steering committee. Um, you know, it's been a, a goal throughout this process, but uh, there's always things we can do uh, to make sure we're reaching uh, community members who would, wouldn't otherwise participate uh, and have historically not been um, uh, benefiting from uh, city engagement activities. Uh, and then better integrating other city departments. So we make sure that they understand uh, and are bought in on the recommendations in the plan and can help carry those forward moving forward. Uh, and then in terms of uh, improvements folks would like to see in the plan documents, uh, making the documents more focused and easier to understand and use. Uh, as you've noticed, our, our plan documents are quite long, uh, 200 plus pages, some of them over 300 pages. Um, and a lot of folks find those difficult to, to grasp, difficult to understand, to find the information they want. So can we streamline those documents, make them easier to use and easier to understand? Uh, part of that, uh, could be being clearer about the desired outcomes uh, instead of getting lost in uh, sort of minutia of, of uh, fine detail, but being really clear and descriptive about what is the, the desired outcome for this neighborhood in the future. Uh, reducing some of the, the repetition in the plans. Uh, a lot of stuff is repeated in the area-wide recommendations and the neighborhood recommendations uh, across different topic areas. So. Uh, we can cut some of that out uh, to reduce the size of the plans. Uh, also want to make sure that we're uh, being clear about identifying the implementation priorities and providing the information that we need to advance those implementation priorities uh, and improving the ways we track uh, the impact of these plans uh, that they have been getting um, a little unwieldy the way we've been using the measurable goals. So improving those. Uh, 
uh, and then more closely aligning these plans with our citywide plans, uh, like Comp Plan 2040 and Blueprint Denver, uh, to make sure that the, the recommendations are aligned and that these plans are, are moving forward uh, the citywide recommendations and saying how they uh, should be accomplished in these neighborhoods. So that was a, a summary of, of what we heard in our interviews and found in our research. Uh, and that has informed the uh, preliminary proposal that I'm gonna share with you here. Uh, so at a high level, what we're trying to accomplish with this update to the program is making a planning process that is more efficient and equitable. Uh, so it, it both moves faster um, and results in, in more equitable outcomes and has more equitable engagement. Uh, and plans that are easier to understand and use so that everyone can understand what is in the plan. Um, and it makes it easy to, again, take the plan and, and move it forward. And so that gets to the third point here of setting up implementation, making sure that these are, are, are plans that have a purpose and will be used and, and have an impact in the community. So getting into a little uh, more specifics uh, in terms of improving the process, uh, what we're thinking of doing is uh, really concentrating the engagement on the first phase. Uh, so we have this really heavy, robust outreach uh, and engagement process that really saturates the, the planning area so that everyone in the planning area uh, is aware of the plan and has an opportunity to participate and then uh, really riding that momentum throughout the rest of the planning process. Uh, if we do a whole bunch of work up front, we shouldn't have to do uh, as much in, in later phases of the planning process. Uh, part of that will include a statistically valid survey that we would send out in this first phase of engagement uh, to make sure we're getting a representative sample of the community and getting uh, detailed feedback um, from them. Uh, it would also be paired with uh, continuing to use community navigators and, and further strengthening that program, um, which will help us reach the, the segments of the community that uh, have been harder to reach that don't typically participate. Uh, that we know we need to make extra effort to engage. Um, also using an advisory committee to get broader input uh, throughout the planning process. Uh, part of the, the issue with the steering committees is we're asking a lot of them and it limits who can participate. Uh, so by using moving to an advisory committee model that will meet uh, periodically throughout the process and still provide key input, uh, but if we, we aren't asking as much of them in terms of a time commitment, uh, we can get more folks to participate and stay participating in the process and won't, uh, hopefully won't see the attrition that we've seen in, in steering committees before. Uh, but we'll also pair that with uh, a, um, an equity engagement focus group that will help us help guide our engagement and make sure that we are um, doing the right things in terms of engagement and reaching the right folks and, and um, serving as the, the resource for that. Uh, we're also looking at streamlining the, uh, the process by combining the first two phases instead of doing uh, a visioning process where we ask really open-ended, broad questions at the beginning, and then try to narrow down from there. Uh, start with the direction we already have. So we have citywide plans, Blueprint Denver and Comprehensive Plan 2040 that already provide direction uh, for every neighborhood in the city. So let's start with that as the basis and, and ask about how we should be refining that and implementing that in these neighborhoods instead of uh, starting with a, a blank slate um, and then having to, to focus from there. Uh, we think this will uh, both speed things up and 
give folks uh, more concrete things to respond to. Uh, a lot of folks struggle with the open-ended questions, uh, not knowing uh, how to start. So if we, if we have something immediately for people to respond to, we can get uh, better feedback. Also looking at moving to an on-call consultant model instead of doing a, uh, a hiring process for a consultant team for each individual plan. Uh, we can do one process to get a, a team of consultants on board that then we can uh, give task orders to for the specific needs. Uh, and that'll help us uh, save time in the planning process. Uh, and so the, the upshot of all this is we uh, expect to complete the plans in about 18 months each. Uh, instead of, again, that two and a half to three years that we have been doing. Uh, in terms of improvements to the plans themselves, uh, tying back to, to what we were talking about with the process there, uh, more focus on uh, the blueprint and comp plan topics. So if we start with uh, that as the basis, we can keep the plans focused on, on what's covered in comp plan and blueprint, which is a, a pretty broad range of topics still. Um, but it'll help us uh, keep the documents a little more focused and making sure that the, the recommendations are relevant to uh, advancing those plans. Um, also keeping the, the language of the plan more outcome oriented. So we're focused on uh, what the future of the neighborhood will look like, what are the outcomes we want to see and achieve, um, and less on the, the specifics of how we want to get there. Um, that will also help us uh, reduce that repetition I mentioned uh, by, by focusing on the outcomes um, and, and limiting what gets repeated in the different sections of the plan. Also limiting some of the additional content like the, the sidebars and the background information that uh, is not really necessary in the plan. Uh, we can cut some of that out. Then also um, improving the language we use in the plan. We, we have a tendency to use a lot of jargon, uh, a lot of technical language. Uh, and so part of... Uh, the consultant team we would like to hire would include a uh, an editor to help us make sure that language is uh, clear and understandable for everyone who uses the plan. Uh, and then in terms of making sure that the plans get implemented, um, I mentioned you know cutting out some of the detail in the plan document itself. Uh, we don't necessarily want to lose that. Uh, so we would look at creating a, an implementation plan as an appendix that would be a separate document that would have all that detail of uh, what are the specific steps we need to take to uh, move this plan forward and achieve the outcomes described in the plan? Uh, and that could be more uh, focused on, on uh, city staff as an audience telling us what we should be doing next uh, so that uh, the community can read the plan and understand where it's going and, and we can still have the detail we need uh, to, to move things forward. Also, uh, more clearly identifying the priorities and those next steps uh, so, so what uh, really needs to happen to achieve these outcomes we're desiring, uh, and how can we uh, move that forward in the near term? Um, and better including staff from the other departments. We would uh, like to get staff members from uh, Dottie, from Parks, from CASER, um, to really be part of the plan team and take ownership of the recommendations that will impact their departments. Um, and so, you know, they will then be able to move those forward. Uh, and make sure that they're the right recommendations uh, for them. And then uh, rely more on the Blueprint metrics. So we have uh, metrics in Blueprint um, that are used to, to track how well we're implementing Blueprint. Uh, we have been sort of coming up with 
our own uh, unique metrics or modified metrics in each NPI plan. So we end up with a lot of different metrics. Uh, as part of the blueprint update we're gonna be doing next year, we wanna improve the metrics uh, in blueprint and then also make sure that uh, at least some of those can also be applied at the neighborhood level. So we can use the same metrics citywide and uh, in the NPI neighborhoods uh, to keep track of, of how things are being done. So uh, that was a quick overview. Uh, I have a few items here that I want to sort of tee up for discussion um, of potential trade-offs that we that we recognize and get your feedback on. Uh, so one of them is this uh, streamlining of the visioning process uh, by starting uh, the process, asking the community more focused and substantive questions. Uh, we think that we can get better responses and also keep the, the process more focused. Um, but there could create this sense that uh, things have already been decided um, and limit future buy-in of the plan if they don't have that uh, sort of open-ended uh, input op opportunity at the beginning uh, that, that some folks uh, do really like. Uh, second one is around moving to this advisory committee model. Um, again, it would meet at, at key milestones in the process to provide us uh, guidance uh, and it would still include uh, a lot of the training and, and education components that we would do at the beginning uh, and help us move the process faster and keep folks engaged and get that uh, broader participation by, by uh, reducing the, the ask from those members. Uh, but there are folks who, who really like the existing model, uh, like the opportunity to really have that sense of ownership of the plans. And so by moving away from that, we may um, have some folks who, who wanted that more uh, in-depth opportunity to, to participate. Uh, and then the third one is um, this goal of keeping the plans focused on key topics. Uh, the, the intent is, again, to, to keep the plan to what it can have the greatest impact on, uh, and also make sure we're not talking about um, topics that the plan really can't influence, that we spend time uh, on things that the plan probably shouldn't be covering uh, and we're sort of wasting the community's time and wasting uh, the city's time as well. But uh, there is uh, some value in, in making these plans like really comprehensive uh, and having these as a, a way to document all of these issues in the community, even if the plan can't really influence them, at least it's documented somewhere and, and the community can point to it and say, uh, we should be doing something about this. It's it's in the plan. Uh, so those are the uh, trade-offs that I'd like to hear more from you all about. Uh, before we get to that, uh, we met with Budget and Policy Committee of City Council on Monday. I uh, gave them the same presentation. Uh, they had some really good feedback for us. Um, so just wanted to give you a, a quick summary of that. In general, there's support for the faster process, uh, the focus on outcomes in the plan and, and moving to that implementation plan appendix. Uh, there was some concern about this advisory committee idea um, that they wouldn't necessarily have the, as much uh, time to get into the details and, and provide that level of, of guidance that uh, some of the council members appreciate. Um, there was uh, uh, support, again, for the focus on equitable engagement and that saturation engagement at the beginning, they liked that idea. Um, but there were some questions about how topics that aren't in blueprint that we wouldn't include in the plan will be addressed. Um, the idea is that uh, we'll 
be better off directing folks to places that can actually help them with those topics, whether that's other agencies in the city or, or other resources. Uh, so instead of putting it in a plan and just having it there, we can actually connect folks to the resources they need. Uh, that'll be a better outcome for everyone. Uh, so next steps are uh, finalizing the preferred alternative based on the feedback we're getting this week, uh, moving into creating the del deliverables, the updated uh, strategic plan and other things. Um, and then we'll have another round of outreach uh, in December on those deliverables and uh, where we're going to be planning next in phase three. Uh, we want to get some feedback on this before we made a decision on, on final decision on what plan areas will be next in phase three. Uh, and then once we have that, we move into getting ready for uh, the next round of plans next year. Uh, so just uh, finally recapping the intent here is again, uh, a better, more efficient, more equitable planning process, uh, more useful plans that better lead to implementation. So I will stop there and uh, happy for comments and questions. On this. Great, I appreciate it. Um, and I'm gonna open it up here in just a sec. I have one big request, one request, and that is being cognizant that we had a few members who were here with us tonight who had to leave early and that there are others who were not able to be here. Could we share the presentation out pretty quickly to all members? And I'd like a copy of it as well. I mean, I think everybody, including those who are here, uh, so that people can also, based on this, give you some thoughtful comment directly and you know, just put instructions on where that should be directed. Should it go through Andrew? Do you, you want it to go to you? So we, we want to make sure we're not opening it up for an online <laughs> violation of, of open meetings, but I would like to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to, to give you feedback. Yeah. Um, and I really thank you because I think, uh, I feel like a lot of feedback that has been coming from this body has been heard. I appreciate that. Um, I have a huge list, but I'm going to open it up to the, to the floor first if anybody would else would like to start. I guess just one question, Fred, in terms of how you want to take this, um, just broad scattershot, or do you want to go through Scott's questions I first? I think just go for it. If you've got other things, let's let's get them. I, I think that they um, they can take it all in and sort it out. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, I. this actually goes to the second question that you had, but it also came up for me. I would just love to hear more about how the advisory committee would operate if that would be a separate entity than the engagement focus group because i know in a lot of cases we've gotten like a group of people that take a lot of ownership over it but it becomes maybe in some cases more their plan than the broader communities and i also know we've heard advocacy for having um more of a navigator role that's connecting city staff to community and i'm just wondering how these two groups or maybe one group will work yep Right, so it would be two groups, and uh, the equity engagement focus group would be that sort of second role, the okay. uh, connection, uh, and also helping us uh, make those connections and, and make sure we're uh, doing the right types of engagement. And then the advisory committee uh, would provide direction on um, broader process issues and also uh, you know, key issues that we need help understanding understanding the feedback we're getting from the community. So we would likely meet with them uh, sort of following rounds of engagement, say, all right, this is all the engagement or all the feedback we've gotten, help us understand what's most important, how we should be uh, balancing you know, competing interests and, and making decisions on trade-offs. 
Uh, so they would still be providing that guidance on on those key decisions. Um, we need to make a decision on, on what goes in the plan or, or how we're going to craft a, a recommendation or things like that. Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting that you've proposed these two separate bodies. I think you know, there's always this struggle that we get the usual suspects who are going to come forward for the steering committee or whatever. And while that's limiting, it's also an important resource because those are the people who are involved and the people who have the ability to show up and all of that. I, I, I'm really intrigued by the idea of focus groups. I think, you know, we've seen the community navigator thing be an important view into the community. I, I think we saw that at Park Hill Golf Course. I think we got off to a rocky start in that they it focused on one segment of the community and missed another. And, and that was a little bit of a challenge. I'm intrigued by the idea of focus groups because it, it feels to me like I've been reading a lot about, frankly, paying um, citizens for their participation in, in processes and the equity um, that comes from doing that. And I, I start to wonder if you can in the same way that you're talking about doing a statistically valid survey, I start to wonder if you can carefully devise focus groups to be throughout the process and, and helping you to act as a check to make sure that the issues that are coming forward and, and coming up and how you're proposing to address them resonate with a wider group of residents than those who might be coming to the meetings more regularly or might be on the, the the committee. And so I guess from my perspective, and I, I'm not an expert in that area at all, it feels to me like you could be onto something that could provide amazing validity, potentially bring people into the process, particularly if we're paying them, who aren't otherwise, and and could really help us to better understand whether what we're doing is is meeting those needs and meeting a the needs of needs of the full range of the community. Um, well, well, okay. We can we can round well, robin. Let's, let's round robin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned that uh, kind of uh, the goal is to streamline it down to eighteen months. Um, how, I guess, in general, like how would you go about uh, that process while still including a lot of elements that you're uh, doing right now, currently? Yeah, so uh, I think there are uh, sort of two ways we're, we're planning to save time. And one is, uh, as I talked about, basically combining the first two phases. So going from a, a sort of five-phase process down to four-phase. Um, and then also with that, keeping the conversation more focused uh, instead of getting dragged off into talking about uh, a wider range of topics, uh, that first round of engagement will keep the plan focused and uh, getting that more concrete, more robust feedback will help us then move faster uh, through the remaining part of the process. Um, and then, you know, this more robust engagement, as, as Fred was just talking about, uh, uh, a lot of times what slows us down is getting late in the process and people feel like they haven't had an opportunity to participate. They have more feedback. So again, if we get this saturation engagement up front and we're doing all these things to uh, making sure that we are getting broad and diverse uh, feedback throughout the process, 
uh, we're hoping that'll eliminate some of the delays we've been running into late in the process. Yeah, so I have a few questions. Are, are we just doing one at a time and popping around? Or? Yeah, kind of. We're just, it makes a nice conversation, I think. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, maybe, um, they, they may be pretty quick, but I, I want to say that I appreciate that you guys are, are looking at this and um, doing maybe some level setting at the beginning based on the experience because I've been in some of those rooms where you know, people dream big and and it is, uh, it can be disappointing when you have somebody write down a marker, you know, what you just said about what you want and there's no way it's, it's going to happen. And so, um, you know, setting level with introduction of what plans are we guided by, what learnings have we had and, and, and in addition to the the broad city plans, there's a lot of other initiatives and things going on. Um, so I guess my question is, how do you integrate all of that into the level setting? Um, for instance, the uh, if expanding affordable housing initiative that every community should be aware of it and have some plans around. How do you integrate all that in the process with this new setup? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and. We don't have a, a detailed answer yet. That's still part of the, the details we're, we're figuring out, but uh, we know we will need to be doing a better job of, of education and, and level setting with the entire community at the beginning of the process. Uh, and then also doing uh, additional uh, education with uh, the advisory committee uh, at the beginning for them as well. Uh, and so, you know, Part of that is the way we we do the the outreach and the uh, the uh, awareness raising at the beginning, uh, and then part of it may be things that we need to be doing outside of NPI. Of uh, are there ways that just in general we can um, get people opportunities to learn more about city planning, mm -hmm. zoning, all that stuff. Uh, you know whether they have an NPI plan coming or not. Uh, those may be longer-term projects, like setting up a assistive planning academy or something like that. Um, that will help eventually. Uh, so I think it's sort of a, a two-phase thing of, of what can we do within the NPI plan to make sure everyone's aware of it and knows what it means and how to participate and has the background and uh, knowledge they need to do that and, and that level setting of understanding what uh, what's the plan can do and can't do. Um, and then more broadly, we'd like to raise sort of the, the level of knowledge and awareness uh, citywide and, and city planning and, and how folks can participate in MPI plans, in rezonings, in uh, everything that's going on in the city. No, I think that, that'd be great. And kind of along those lines, um, I feel like we've had the conversation in some form or fashion here, but with the plans, I imagine, and I've seen there, there are a slew of recommendations but there is no um, to date. There are there's no costing. You know, there's no budget um, uh, produced alongside. Uh, no feasibility studies. Are those sort of things going to be moving um, forward? Yeah. So that again is something we're we're talking about. So we don't have the details figured out yet. But part of that um, being clear about the priorities and the next steps will be. Uh, 
getting more details on, on what it will take. So what is, what is the cost of, of doing this or what is the cost of figuring out the actual cost of doing this? Do yeah. we need to do another uh, next step study to, to further this? Or um, So yes, that, those are all things that uh, we want to include in that implementation plan appendix. Uh, and by having it in an appendix, we can have that greater level of detail and also um, those can be updated uh, without having to, you know, do a formal plan amendment. So, you know, as costs change, as, as priorities change, we can keep that updated uh, and not have you know, these numbers locked into the plan. Mm -hmm. That's good. Thank you. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, would you mind uh, stopping the screen share? Just so that the board will be full screen. Thank you. Go ahead, go, sir. <clears throat> yeah, I want to build one on what Angel was saying, and I think we're all kind of zooming in on the implementation because I think that's where we kind of fall short in our, our planning processes. And um, I would really like to see um, prioritization and alignment with funding sources. So for I think Sidewalks is a perfect example on the agenda today, and there's not, not a single plan that doesn't call for better Sidewalks. In the city now, we do have funding source. Um, so I would also like to see um, assigning responsibilities because right now we default to private sector to build sidewalks through um, right of way dedication and right of way improvements. Whereas you know right of way improvements should really reside in the Doty uh, courts and do it comprehensively on the scale of street or neighborhood. So. I just, I know we're talking about it, but I want to note that because I think it's really a critical component of kind of allocating responsibility or uh, onus on, you know, which, which improvements belong in, into, in, in which, in whose, whose responsibility they are. And again, kind of aligning with funding sources and prioritization would be really helpful. I just, I don't have any questions. I just have flowery comments. <laughs> um, well, speaking of that, in case I didn't say it at the beginning, um, I just want to echo Fred. I feel heard. I feel seen. <laughs> there are new ideas that I didn't even think of that I love. Thank you. Um, in, but sort of building on this, this conversation, um, I think some of this is out of purview of CPD, but when we talk about inclusion of staff from other departments, um, in an ideal scenario, I think it wouldn't be like um, the person who it's their first day on the job, maybe, you know? Um, and then also thinking about really balancing the feasibility piece and like hearing them when this is not something that is gonna be viable on the horizon for the next 20 years. And then also pushing them to think beyond what they think might be viable on the horizon for 20 years. Um, and just, you know, with each plan, trying to find A, the right person and B, that sweet spot of being progressive as a city and also living in a place where we can achieve our goals. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's something we're always trying to balance. Of plans should be aspirational, but they should also be achievable. Yeah. And what's that right balance? And following up on that, I mean, one of the things, as I listened to this conversation about level setting and desired outcomes, I wonder if it's worth a conversation as you start to put in place the RFQ and, and work with the consultants to talk about 
how through facilitation and through good third-party facilitation, you might be able to help channel the what are often unrealistic or, you know, I hate to use this term, but kind of really inappropriate um, aspirations that, that are heard into uh, and translate the, what are often very specific, you know, uh, well, gosh, we don't want to do this because I, I hate the Taco Bell next to my house, into more general guidance that really can go into and speak to the desired outcomes. And, and so I wonder if, if, if really quality facilitation throughout can, can help us meet that in addition to just sort of level setting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and facilitation is another thing we intend to include in that uh, consultant request. So. Yeah, Heidi. So just with this, I really love this idea of level setting and I, I think of it as expectation setting. And one of the concerns I've always had about MPIs um, is, is how do we make sure that expectations are set that we're only working on things that are within the boundaries of comp plan and blueprint Denver, and that this is not an opportunity to course correct, to, to make a correct, a different course off of those documents. There's a lot of public outreach done to create the, you know, blueprint Denver. And so you need, if, if you're recommending something that doesn't conform with Blueprint Denver, it's not going in this document. So I really appreciate the focus on focusing in on Blueprint Denver and the comp plan. I think that is, a, is important to set everybody's expectations in the right place for positive outcomes. So thank you for that. Um, and my last flower, Carmen, is it, I guess is a question. So I, I understand the need to do, to go to a consultant at call. Is that what you call on it? Call. On call consultant. That makes sense, right? That's efficient. They get used to the process. They, we start to become, you know, more of a machine cranking these out. But I, did you have any conversations about any kind of flip side to that of, of, not bringing in fresh perspectives of other consultant teams that could lead to something new that we're like, oh, hey, we really want to make the process that way and and keeps, you know, because things are always going to be tweaking, right? This process is always going to be tweaking. Did you have any conversation around that? Or just be inclusive or broader pool of consultants. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's part of it, that it, it will be a pool of consultants and won't be one consultant do everything so oh, be that okay. opportunity to get that uh, feedback and then also it, it's for a, a set term of the year so it's three years or five years or something like that and then we'll do it again so that'll be our opportunity to get uh, a new pool of consultants or, or some new ideas um, great so yeah thank you yeah Jill. I just um, hate to be contrary I just want to push back a little bit on what you just said about um, nothing considered beyond blueprint Denver and I was on the blueprint task force that was four and a half years ago that now no three and a half four no four uh, May of 2019 uh, there may be things that weren't thought of and so I don't know um, that you exclude if in their communities that may not have been top of mind when blueprint was approved and and you know, um, and I know that Blueprint is supposed to be amended by some of the communities. 
that could go haywire, that could be all over the place. So I know it's a, one of those balancing acts, but I would I would say that we probably have to keep our minds open because things are iterative and something new every day. Right. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That, that we we want to keep it focused as much as possible, but yeah, there are things that have come up in the last four and a half years that Blueprint didn't necessarily address. And there are unique considerations in some of these plan areas that aren't addressed at the citywide level that um, uh, maybe we need to go into more detail in these neighborhood plans or area plans. So um, you're, you're right, it's, it's finding that balance of keeping it focused so we can keep the plan moving and, and make the plan useful while also really addressing what the community needs the plan to address. Yeah, um, I really appreciate you both for bringing that up. And I was thinking when you had the question on the board, like the concern being that people are going to view this as pre-baked and that it's just sort of a pro forma engagement. And I think that there's an important precedent in West for doing something different than what was in Blueprint. Like use Blueprint as a starting point. This is what the plan was so that people have a frame of reference and, you know, aren't just overwhelmed by infinite possibility. But, you know, this is, conditions have changed since Blueprint was in, and this is a document that can be adjusted. And so make the case if it needs to be different. Make the case if it needs to be enhanced. Um, so let people know that, you know, there is precedent for changing course, and that's okay. Um, and then just in terms of sort of the broader content pieces, I, I, um, think you referenced it earlier of just really being able to show people for this concern here's where you need to go but here we're just talking about these things i'll throw in a couple of quickies um you know kind of on that a, a tool that i've often used doing planning exercises with nonprofits is a parking lot you know we got a sheet on the side and that's where the stuff that doesn't fit goes and maybe institutionalizing that a bit within the plan, because there are things that are relevant that maybe there isn't a place for now. And that there might be an appendix, for example, where some of these things land to say, doesn't fit right now, but we wanna make sure that, that it's there and it's acknowledged. Um, the conversation about participation of other departments, I think is, is really important. And I think, in, in my mind, I guess one of the questions is, can you help frame this from the start as more of a mayoral mandate and not CPD's project in a way? And I, I, I just wonder, given some of what's going on with community engagement at the mayor's office, given the COOs who are there and their remit across the board, feels to me like getting them involved now and, and launching this conversation so that this isn't CPD saying, we're gonna do this and parks, we want you to come. It's the mayor's office saying, yeah, CPD is running this for us and the rest of you come on board. So just a thought. Um, and then you asked a couple of specific questions and I kind of want to go back to that a little bit the open-ended versus vision. And we've heard some discussion about the pros and cons of that. And, and I don't think it has to be, I don't think framing the conversation away from open-ended questions is necessarily limiting because I think that open-ended questions are very difficult, as you said, 
for people to answer. And I think it's it's one going to be one of those things that you guys are just going to need to really work on. And and having a third party facilitator, I think, will help push back on you guys about what needs to be in those. And that dialogue will be generative. But um, I, th I think open-ended questions are almost always the wrong way to go. But I don't think that not using open-ended questions has to be limiting. I just want to throw that out there. Um, and then my final note is, I think this, this conversation about implementation and how that happens is really interesting. And it leads me to think a little bit about this, this question of legislative rezonings um, and how that looks. Because one of the criticisms I've given frequently <laughs> is, is that these plans are trying to zone the entire plan area within the small area plan, parcel by parcel. And I, I don't think that's necessarily productive. I don't think you're necessarily going to be trying to rezone throughout the entire plan area. And I, I wonder if, you know, sticking to a higher level plan that's outcome-based, bubble diagrams, bubble diagrams. And that the conversation about legislative rezonings maybe is really more a part of the implementation and maybe in this, we're not going to settle on all of the zonings, but that, that initiating that legislative rezoning process is the opportunity then to dive in and see what really needs to be done where and get the specific, as opposed to trying to do it now as part of the NPI. So those, those are my, those are, that's my final list. Yes. Fred, what that makes me think of is in that implementation part of the document where you said you're going to focus more on outcomes and kind of next steps. If there's a roadmap that says, okay, this is the legislative zoning that should get teed up. And I'm only focused on zoning. I know there's a lot of other yeah. components of implementation in that plan that would also need yeah. their roadmap. And this is what the next step, but it, if it could be um, pretty clear for anybody reading the document that, oh, now we're supposed to do <laughs> a rezoning that yeah. matches this. And, and specifically, hey, the community identified this area, uh, this area was identified as part of the process and it, and the outcomes we're looking for are X or that the community is looking for. And then you can get into an actual rezoning conversation with the council member, with, with everybody and figure it out as an implementation exercise as opposed to planning exercise. And then they kind of have cover, right? Because this is an approved document by the neighborhood that says, Okay, this next step is this legislative rezone. Mary's making face at me. So. Yeah, I have a question for you. Yeah. So historically, with the plans that we have now, where we do have more prescriptive zoning, um, we've had conversations that if an individual applicant or a property owner brings forward, sure, apply to rezone anywhere in that height limit. But if we're looking for a legislative rezoning, we want to see the max. So if we are having a softer approach and what we're recommending in terms of the zone height limits, what would your expectation be when you do see legislative rezonings come forward? My expectation would be that the plan gives us an outcome-based guidance to say, this area needs really high density. This area that we're doing needs a better answer from a zoning perspective to enable missing middle or this, that kind of thing. So that 
because I, I I think that I, I don't think it's always useful to get a plan that says this area is three stories maximum. I, what what does that mean really? I mean, it's just kind of it it, it it's often I hate to use that term, but it often feels a little arbitrary. Um, whereas if if we get guidance, and I think that where we've started to see these diagrams that show us, well, this area is low, medium residential. This area is high, res high density residential. That to me is frankly more meaningful and, and leads to a, a better discussion about the rezonings that come before us. You know, this is why it's appropriate here. Well, it's, it's low, medium. And so, you know, that we've kind of defined that as X and here's why this makes sense. And yeah, this parcel may be a little bit different, but it's, it's, it's a question of discussion as opposed to, well, you know, the plan, the line was drawn here. So this parcel wants to be three and this one wants to be five. Does that make sense? Did I answer adequately? I think so. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> To build on that, I think it might be a really difficult conversation within the community because I think people want to see specific guidelines and specific protections sometimes in their case, right? They want to make sure that they're not next door to a five-story building. So um, leaving some ambiguity uh, might be difficult to, to have a conversation about. I ain't going to please all the people all the time, unfortunately, but... Yeah, I, I get that. And I think uh, my understanding is, is that part of why we got so specific was because people, we had property owners coming in and saying, well, you know, you guys need to make sure this doesn't happen in the parcels next to me. And, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily, uh, I'm not sure that the appropriate response from a planning perspective is to say, okay, we're going to say that that has to be three stories. I think the better approach is to say, well, look, this area is low medium and, you know, let's, let's have a conversation when that comes forward. And we're really working on it, whether it's a legislative rezoning or a rezoning that's coming forward. I think it means that we're able to have meaningful conversations about it as opposed to, well, the line on the drawing says this, so that's what the plan guidance is. Because I think it also shifts. And I think our understanding of context shifts as context develops, as things happen, as things change in a neighborhood, as they as they develop, sometimes that means, you know, yeah, actually, five stories is appropriate here, not three stories. And sometimes that means, actually, we we've seen what happened in this area, and this this isn't quite right, and you know, this actually should move to an MS, or this should move, you know, that kind of thing. So I think there's I think it allows those plans to have a longer shelf life as well. Does that make any sense? I'm not disagreeing. I'm just yeah. I just bringing up another just point. A point. <laughs> yeah, I, a point. I also wonder. I mean, I'm not the developer here. That's you. Um, but the predictability for developers if there's a loss there as well. I I mean I I again I think. You know, much of land use planning is the balance between predictability and flexibility. And I think we've, personally, I think we've gone far too far to the predictability side. Yeah. And I think it means that we've lost flexibility to 
get better outcomes and, and sometimes outcomes that communities want because we've kind of drawn ourselves into a box. So I think we, I, I think that moving to more outcome oriented results on these small area plans starts to push us toward a better balance. <clears throat> What else, folks? Or is it time to go home and eat dinner? Well, actually, I'll bring it up that since you're saying that, would now the the NPIs be the flexibility to the uh, rigidity of blueprint differ? Where one one have some kind of balance where one is more rigid, where one's now saying, here's how you could be flexible in it. I don't think that. I don't think that they're they're balancing each other. I mean, I think I think we've gotten more specific in the neighborhood plans than yeah. maybe we we wanted to, and and so yeah, maybe maybe it is helping to back off some of the specificity that we've seen in blueprint that we've kind of then reinforced in NPI plans. So maybe it is providing a bit of balance, but yeah, it's I, maybe it is because it'll be an update. So. Yeah, maybe. I, I'm just wondering who's venturing to make these, like, um, if there is a proposed um, legislative rezoning, who's recommending that? Would that be the MBI leads, the advisory folks, the planning department? Who would venture to do that uh, or to put those things in words for a, com a community? And would you need, like, the council? person's buy-in i mean who's going to do that is what i'm saying yeah yeah i think it would be something that would come out of the plan which would mean it would be something that came from the community and the advisory committee and but how would they know to to recommend that um i i i bench what you're saying is you put it in there so the community knows what to do next i think it's an excellent i don't want to speak for him but where i'm coming from is it's an expl explanation of the process of this is our planning process when we do a planning document the next part of it is this step so that what you're envisioning we've paved the way through in our zoning to be able to do um so that's where my comments were were coming around that yeah. because if you're just if you're if you're not um a planning or development professional mm -hmm. that's a part of the education that we were talking about that, that they don't we can't expect them to have and but, even if you are we're hoping that communities do more legislative rezoning for the most part a lot of um what we see i see more and more of it though but a lot of it are these one-offs and you know if you want this on your block you've got to you know, put in an application to rezone. So I think it's suggestive. I think it goes in the direction we'd like to see, but I just wonder how you would naturally get there within a body of folks where the majority are not planning zoning folks in this realm. But to Heidi's point, I think that the, that implementation appendix will put that forward and, and sort of say, this is the next step. And I would hope that kind of naturally out of that process, we will see leadership both at CPD, but also from the council members to, to, to implement the plan. I mean, 
And that's true of whether it's a legislative rezoning or other recommendations for implementation. We'll see, and I would guess that that appendix will say, here are these pieces and here's the implementation plan and here's some of the responsibilities for it. There should be kind of a bit of a, you know, where's that gonna come from? And so back to Joel Noble used to say is, you know, planning um, board would hopefully be more um, in the, the realm of planning and not just reacting. Yes. Uh, maybe I don't even know if that's in the realm of what we should be messing with, but I just see it being very subjective from community to community if the community is left to put those prescriptions into an implementation plan, how that looks, how does this happen? Um, how is it, How do we get to a point of equity where certain communities aren't locked into their own understanding or to the, the, the desires of their council person or what have you, unless it's prescribed from somewhere universal that's consistent? Yeah, I think, I think it's part of that education level setting, expectation setting at the beginning that understanding what this plan means. But I think it's also, right now, in the previous plan, we spend a lot of time explaining to people that the plan isn't zoning. Yeah. And, and the less we have to make that distinction because the plan will lead directly to rezoning, yeah, I think that feeds into people's current understanding of, of what the process is or hope what, what the process mm. is. So instead of having to get them on board with the plan leading to zoning, right now we're trying to, we've been trying to sort of break that and say, plan's the plan, then maybe we'll come with rezoning yeah. later. Yeah. It's like the plan is going to lead directly into the rezoning. I think that's an easy conversation to have and easy for the community to understand. Yeah. And it won't be every parcel in the in the neighborhood. Right. But it, I, my guess is, is that there will be thoughtful suggestions that come out of the plan saying this area is really important. This, you know, and and my guess is is that some of that will be driven by equity considerations. And you know, we boy, we've got a, a section of the neighborhood that is heavily um, Hispanic, where we heard so much demand for ADUs for multi generational living, and so. Yeah, we need to address that. I mean, that's kind of a half-assed one because hopefully we won't be worrying about ADUs in the relatively near future. But uh, things like that that come out that are equity-based recommendations that they're making that then follows on. What else? Anything else? Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much. It's really exciting. I was told by a council member that we're going to like what we hear. <laughs> council member was right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, manager chair time. Are there any announcements? Uh, no announcements. Okay. Then I think we can adjourn. Thank you all.
Treehouse Sanctum one more time, y'all. Those guys were awesome. Anytime you see uh, kind of a rock and roll outfit, have somebody with a trumpet. Like, oh boy, this is going to be too cool. That's why we had to step our game up a notch tonight. Everybody wore hats except for Max, because Max normally wears hats. You got to zag when they think you're going to zig. That's right, guys. Keep you guys chasing me. Yep. <laughs> Chase Max. <laughs> 
I'm sure as hell not going up. Yeah. Without a home, no man's a man Leaves a living to his maker's hands The only friend I got left to me Turned table on a 45 And I know that when the flood comes Honey, well, I won't make it out alive And I sing, yeah, oh, yeah I'm on the mountain, yeah, oh, yeah. Hallelujah, oh, yeah How the devil come to take me Now I'm chained to a bottle of whiskey, praying the levee's gonna break. Just burn my home and take all my things, send me to the Lord above. Cause I know on the day that the judgment comes, sure as hell not going hurt. It's like a second home now. It's awesome. We're going to play you one last song. Thanks for coming out tonight. It's beautiful. Weather held off. Sun was out not too long, so I can get sunburned. We're actually going to sing you a song uh, by a rock band. This is a song called Bob O'Reilly.
There was a very awesome lightning bolt back there a little while ago. It's gone now. It hasn't happened for a long time, so we're safe. 
I was going to say something, but I didn't want to frighten the crowd. Do <laughs> you guys mind if we play some songs we love? Is that cool? All right, cool. We got a chance uh, this fall to see John Prine riding around in a golf cart. Might have been the happiest moment of my life. And I have a kid. Just kidding. I really don't. <laughs> but we'd like to sing a John Prine song if that's cool.
reminisce about the time we had Cause in the morning I'll be dead and gone for good Cause this ship is sinking past the whiskey Give me my last cigarette Tell my father it was worth it Oh my friends, this is the end, this is the end Given an answer to whether or not everyone is truly alone. What bird has flown and this ship has sunk? Man, tie my hands, leave me dead in the trunk. Just don't ask me if I'm doing okay, cause I'm not okay. This ship is sinking past the waist. Give me my last cigarette. Give me my last cigarette Tell my friends that I love them Oh my friends, this is the end, this is the end See you out there. With its wide open spaces and scenic landscapes, Colorado is famous for its natural attractions and limitless outdoor recreation. When it comes to hunting, Colorado offers some of the best and most diverse opportunities anywhere in the country. Here you can pursue 10 different big game species across millions of acres of public land. By far, Colorado is best known for its world-class elk hunting. With an estimated population of nearly 280,000 animals, Colorado is home to the largest elk herds in the world. Each fall, hunters from near and far come to pursue elk in Colorado's backcountry. Colorado is also home to one of the fastest growing moose populations in the lower 48 states. Originally transplanted into northern Colorado in the late 1970s, moose continue to expand their range and pioneer new habitats, creating increased opportunities for big game hunters. For deer hunters, Colorado is home to both mule and white-tailed deer. Mule deer are widely dispersed across the state. Whitetails are primarily found on Colorado's eastern plains and in small populations on the western slope. Colorado's state animal, the Rocky Mountain Bighorn Sheep, is a prominent figure in much of the steep and jagged terrain across the state. With an estimated population of nearly 7,000 animals, 
Colorado offers some of the best bighorn hunting anywhere in the world. Hunting for the less common desert bighorn sheep is also available in a limited area of western Colorado, offering a once-in-a-lifetime hunt. Mountain goats thrive along the steep, windswept ledges of Colorado's alpine tundra. These agile animals spend most of the year at elevations of more than 12,000 feet, offering a unique and challenging hunt among the highest peaks of Colorado's mountains. Heading from the peaks to the prairie, you'll find pronghorn. Colorado is home to nearly 90,000 pronghorn statewide, the largest population in the state's history. If all these were not enough reasons to hunt Colorado, the Centennial State also offers hunting opportunities for the elusive mountain lion and the black bear. Colorado supports abundant populations of both animals throughout the state. With so many different species and abundant game populations, there's never been a better time to hunt Colorado. Best of all, Colorado offers a variety of licenses that give hunters the opportunity to hunt every year. Hunters also fund the majority of the state's wildlife management and conservation programs with their license purchases. If you're searching for your next hunting adventure, look no further than Colorado. For more information and to plan your next big game hunt, please visit our website. Ferrets are a member of the mustelid family. Uh, many people know them as kind of a, a weasel, but that family is pretty remarkable. It includes the weasels, um, the ermine, as well as um, badgers and wolverines. And I always like to think that ferrets are like a weasel with a wolverine attitude. Ferrets are really amazing. We actually thought they were extinct back in the 1970s. We thought we had lost the, the last wild population and we didn't have any in captivity. And then in 1981, um, a ranch dog in Wyoming uh, brought home a, a little dead animal and the, the rancher's wife looked at it and said, this is kind of interesting and took it to someone and, and they said, well, that's a black-footed ferret. And so that was the the population that was found in Matitsi, Wyoming, and every ferret we have right now is descended from seven of those individuals. That colony, when we found it, was about 120-some ferrets out there, and then it started to collapse. Um, the state of Wyoming and the Fish and Wildlife Service went in and started capturing animals, and were able to capture something like 16, and we're able to get seven of those to breed. So one of the first steps in federal recovery of this species was to figure out a way to get those captive ferrets to breed. Um, like I said, there were seven ferrets that successfully did that. 
and they, the ferrets in the captive program are spread between the National Blackfooted Ferret Conservation Center, which is um, managed by the Fish and Wildlife Service. It's, up, it's here in Colorado, it's up north of um, Wellington. And then um, there are seven or eight different zoos across the continent, one in Toronto and others here in the U.S. that have captive breeding programs as well. So all of the ferrets that are produced each summer, it's determined whether or not their genetics are important for the captive program or if they're able to go out into the wild. If they're going to be released, they'll actually go to the National Blackfooted Ferret Conservation Center for the preconditioning pens. And what they do there is they move them into outdoor pens. They're enclosed pens, so they're protected from predators, but they start to learn how to live in underground prairie dog burrows. So how to get around in the prairie dog burrows. Um, they're also given live prairie dogs in, in the outdoor pens so they can learn how to hunt. They get a little bit of exposure to um, predators flying around as well as the center sits within a prairie dog colony. So they start to hear the sounds and the smells of, a, of an actual outdoor natural environment that they're gonna be released into. Ferrets are very dependent on prairie dogs, both for food and for shelter. So over 90% of their diet is prairie dogs, and so they, they need to be in a healthy prairie dog town so they have plenty of food to eat. But they also live in the prairie dog burrows, so they need a healthy prairie dog town so that there are empty burrows for their, them to move into. And that's where they shelter from predators and from weather and things like that. So when we're looking for a, a black-footed ferret release site, here in Blacktail Prairie Dog Range, we're looking for at least 1,500 acres of prairie dogs. So that's, that's a pretty good sized prairie dog colony for the, the eastern side of Colorado. And the reason for that is each ferret needs about 30, 35 acres of prairie dogs for, an, for that individual ferret to raise her litter of, of kits every summer. So, to have a, a successful, viable population, we need a large prairie dog colony out there. So on the day of a ferret release, what happens is we're really lucky in that we're in the same state as the National Blackfooted Ferret Conservation Center. They load up each ferret in individual carriers and those carriers are all brought out to the site. They're, they're driven to the site that morning. Um, we usually do the releases in the afternoon um, towards evening. Ferrets are nocturnal creatures, so they're gonna be active during, during the night. So we don't wanna put them out too early in the day so that they're protected from the predators. And we get out to the site, we look for active prairie dog burrows, um, burrows that aren't closed up, don't have a lot of cobwebs or things in them, um, have some fresh scat around them. And if it looks like a site that the ferret might like, then we bring a carrier over to it and we open an individual carrier. And that's when we have to be patient. We, we wait for the ferret to actually decide to come out of the carrier on its own. Um, these are predators and they can be uh, a, a bit 
snippy, you could say, and so we don't actually reach in and grab them. We let them walk out on their own. And once they're out, they usually go directly down the burrow. Um, we also bring with a little snack for them to get settled in before they understand the whole colony and who's out there. So usually something like a small mammal, a hamster, a gerbil, or even a portion of a prairie dog. We'll drop that in the burrow with them. A lot of times they're very curious animals, so they will pop back up out of the burrow after they're released. They'll look around. They might even decide to go to a different burrow. Part of that is because we don't know who's already down that burrow. There might be a big prairie dog. There might be a rattlesnake. There might be a turtle. Some reason that they don't actually want to be in that burrow, and they'll go find another one that fit, works for them better. And it's, it's a great event. It's a great experience. And we, on the private lands, we always include the private landowners, um, have them come out and, and help us do the releases. We've also had the opportunity to bring um, children out, school groups, um, you know, usually in coordination with the landowner. With some of the public land releases that we've done, we've had the public come out to the releases. And it's, it's a it's a really fun day to put these animals out. Um, one of the things you hear a lot of when we're doing it is the ferrets chattering. They have a very high-pitched chitter sound that when they're um, feeling a little threatened, they'll, they'll let that sound out, and you hear a lot of that when the releases are happening. Um, and it's just, it's a great opportunity to get some pictures. These are very secretive little animals, and it's hard for people to actually go out and see them. Um, there are a number of live exhibit sites here in the state where, where the public can go see them. Um, and I always recommend people go to those sites. Uh, the Museum of Discovery in Fort Collins, the Rocky Mountain Arsenal in the Denver area, and I believe the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo still has ferrets on exhibit. So those are great sites to see them. And about the only time you're gonna spot them out in the wild is when we're actually doing a release and we're letting them out of their cages. It's very unusual. It's rated the best ferret display in North America because it looks like someone cut a chunk out of the prairie, a chunk out of the ferret's habitat, and set it right down here in the middle of the museum. Colorado is one of the states within the historic range of the black-footed ferret. And so we are participating in federal recovery for the species and then also undertaking work under our state um, ferret management plan. This has been a really rewarding project to work on. Difficult, but rewarding. Um, there's, there's so many moving pieces in a, in a reintroduction like this. And to be able to get all those pieces together, be able to successfully work with the various partners that we have within the program and the private landowners, the egg community, everybody engaged with this and, and be able to put these really remarkable animals back into the habitats that they belong in is, is so important. Um, I always say that when we did our first release back in 2013, um, the last time we had seen ferrets on, on the eastern plains of Colorado was a generation before me. And I mean, that's amazing. They had been gone from that ecosystem for that long. And so to be able to put those, those animals back into the ecosystem where they belong, um, it gave me goosebumps that time that we did that first release. And I thought, well, that, that's kind of cool. Um, but now I've been out on so many of these releases 
I still get goosebumps every time we go out and do it. Sometimes it's because it's cold and windy. Other times it's because it's just, it's amazing. And to be out there with, with kids that really have, have probably not a great idea of how amazing it is that they're part of this process, but that's something that they're gonna remember forever to have been out on a release. We release blackbird ferrets, most endangered um, mammal or ant species on the continent of North America. But also to be out with the landowners and celebrating the, the success they've had on um, developing the prairie ecosystem on their lands is, is just remarkable. It's, it, it's, it's one of the highlights of my career and um, yeah, I, I look forward to watching um, the success continue when it's um, handed off to someone else. special event. We've got the Broncos Foundation and Centura Health here as well as the Food Bank of the Rockies and there we have volunteers, cheerleaders, Miles. Dow Elementary is an awesome little neighborhood school. We have about 350 kids. Um, we have a high percentage of students um, with free and reduced lunch, about 95%. Today is a great example of community coming together to meet kids needs so their families don't have to choose between putting food on the table and paying the rent. Food has gotten very expensive. A lot of families in our community really struggle with food insecurity and so the Food Bank of the Rockies really helps us fill in this gap a little bit. We send home a bag of food with 48 of our kids every Friday. And what our